This is Sodcast number 10. My name is John Stryker Meyer. Welcome to Sodcast. Brought to you courtesy of Jocko Productions and Sod Chronicles. I opened fire towards a shouting NVA voice 30 yards away and noticed George still there beside me. Get out of here, I barked. He just smiled and fired his M16. I insisted, George, get out of here. I'm the one one. This is my job. George fired another burst. I snapped. Who do you think you are? John Wayne? Return fire cracked over our heads as he raised an eyebrow. Nope. Just George Bacon. Now, let's shoot some more of these guys. I chuckled. Calm again. Enemy fire had tapered off. Just beyond our visibility, about 50 yards away, the NVA were reloading, handling their wounded, if they had any, and planning their next move. They couldn't last long. I threw another tear gas grenade down the trail in the heavy humidity. Its cloud hung in the air like rising steam. Rather than stay where the enemy knew we were, George and I pulled back another 25 yards, kneeling behind trees on opposite sides of the trail. Then a shout, and here they came, running and spraying their AKs, their bullets sounding like a ruler, slapping the edge of a desk. Crack, 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 crack. George fired. Brip, 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 brip. I let loose my suppressed Swedish K. Puff, 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 puff. <laughs> we shot as fast as we could. Magazines, not, and we changed the magazines, not waiting for clarified targets like you get on a rifle range. As quickly as anyone appeared, I let loose a well-aimed burst. I shot at glimpses of movement, muzzle blasts, breaking brush, a flash of reflected sunlight, a voice, any indicator of enemy. Our goal was to keep the NVA at arm's length, to throw their plan off balance, disrupt their aim, delay them, confuse them, and to make them pay in blood for any step they took closer to us. Their fire was becoming too concentrated. Twigs fell off trees, bark flew, dirt kicked up, and ricochets twanged past us. By now, there were about 20 NBA shouting and shooting at us. Skip a couple of paragraphs down. This, my first firefight, wasn't how I imagined it. The foliage absorbed so much noise that gunfire didn't sound half as loud as on a range. Unlike the movies, there was no exciting theme music, just the sound of my own heavy breathing, the weight of my rucksack, the sting of sweat in my eyes. I'd begun with a dose of adrenaline, but ten minutes later it was gone, and what kept me going was physical conditioning and mental determination. My parched throat begged for water, but I didn't think about grabbing my canteen. I kept shooting. Enemy soldiers shouted to one another from several different directions and again attempted to flank us, and again they met our grenades, arched, so they would detonate in the air. Grenades alone 
must have killed several. Then kaboom, flash, an ear-splitting explosion, RPG, the rifle-propelled grenade. The rocket detonation shook the ground behind us, narrowly missing George. I tossed my last tear gas grenade, and George heaved our last white phosphorus. We ran like hell as AK bursts tore into the dirt, slapped trees, ricocheted around us. We reached a low rise, paused, turned, fired at the sound of enemy shouts and breaking brush. Heavy fragmentation grade or two. Then heard the most beautiful sound of my life. Covey. God bless him. It was Covey Engines. Then the story goes on, and I'm reading from the book Secret Commandos. Behind Enemy Lines with the Elite Warriors of Sog. Written by John L. Plaster. And this is one of eight books that he's written. And uh, John served three years in SOG. And he served here on the ground, which was his first mission. My first, my first <laughs> where I actually got out on the ground. And yes. so I want to welcome today John L. Plaster, the first, the one and the only. And by the way, before that book, he had the first nonfiction major book on SOG called SOG. And in it, it's the history. If you want to know anything more about SOG history from a straight historical perspective of a historian, SOG is the book that you want. And John, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, John. And uh, <laughs> you're no, you're no uh, slight veteran of SOG yourself. I only had 19 months compared okay. to your three years, sir. <laughs> and uh, so... Um, that was your first mission, and of course, you're on the ground with George Bacon, George Washington Bacon III. third. a great, great guy. He spoke fluent Vietnamese. He had been up at Da Nang when they had the uh, Sapper attack. On August 23rd, 68, yeah. August 23rd, 68, and that was the greatest loss of special forces in the entire history of the Green Berets. And he was severely wounded. He was severely wounded, but he uh, went to the hospital ship at Da Nang Harbor. Right. And recovered. They probably wanted to ship him home, but George, no. I know, wouldn't have let that happen. But he recovered there and then came to Contum and our team. Yeah, and he was, he was with us at FUB1 Fubai before he came down to Contum with you all. Hey. And there he also, simply by hanging out with the Brew, which was another Montagnard tribe, he learned some of their language. And he was like fluent in Vietnamese, and he picked it all up. He's just a brilliant guy. And a hell of a medic. On and top I think of it. he was helping the brew translate the Bible into That's right. the brew language. Yeah, yeah. And I we knew George, but nothing like you on the ground having time with him, and plus being back at camp. And he was on your team for a while. Right. You two ran what at least two missions together. Two missions, maybe three. Okay. And but uh, just a fine guy. Yeah. That firefight was perfect, George. He wasn't going <laughs> to let somebody risk his life all alone. Isn't that amazing? Just another another day in SOG with a, another one of our SOG legends, George Bacon. And a, um, this mission you had, there's also a couple of aspects. Even when you got near the end, you got to the LZ. If you don't mind, I'd like to go back oh, right. to another uh, paragraph or two, particularly your the one zero on that target was your team that time, or was Ben? Ben... Uh... <laughs> we'll get it in a second, but Ben was the one zero. 50, it was 50 year, 52 years ago. So. <laughs> Indeed. And so um, 
after what we just read through there, the firefight, you and George moved back. And so returning to the book, at last, at last, we reached the LZ, but Ben and the team were nowhere to be seen. Across the opening, 75 yards away, a hand waved. It was Ben. George and I raced across the open ground, then leaped into the bushes among them. Looking back across the opening, I was struck by Ben's tactical genius. Instead of halting as soon as they reached the LZ, Ben had the men run across it, meaning enemy pursuers would have to cross the open area to get us, or sweep slower through the bordering jungle. Ben's quick thinking gave us an excellent field of fire and bought us time for the gunships to get there. While George tended to Hyde's wound and Ben radioed Covey, and Covey, for our first-time listeners, is the uh, fact for the air controller, and he talks to the people on the ground, and then he relates the messages to the tactical air, fast movers, etc. And so I arranged our Vietnamese to fight off the assault that was certain to come. Hardly had I finished when, across the LZ, several NBA soldiers emerged, only to be cut down immediately by our fire. Then the NBA laid down a base of fire and sent troops skirting the LZ to envelop us on our left. At last, Cougar gunships arrived, and Ben unfurled a neon-orange panel to direct their fire. As quick as they confirmed our location, Ben put their growling miniguns on the NVA. Grrrup, grrrup. Enemy fire ceased while the NVA scrambled to evade these fire hoses of tracers. Grrrup, grrrup. Then came 2.75-inch rockets. Kapow. A white javelin flashed into the trees. Boom. Lying beside me, Loy emptied his rifle into the dirt. Ten yards away, his eyes scared, scarred shut. I hollered at him, then knelt above him. AK rounds smacked the dirt beside me. I dropped, rolled on my side, and spotting an NVA just 25 yards away, shot him hard with a five-round burst, knocking him down. It was the first clear shot I'd had. I knew I got him. So this firefight goes on. And so you're at the does. LZ. That was Ben Thompson. Ben Thompson. Bless That's you, it. Ben. Fine, fine man. Fine man. <laughs> and what hell of a... I mean, the ID, you get to the LZ and then run across it. Right. A lot of folks would have said, oh, thank God, we're at an LZ and stop there. But no. It, it's, well, as I explain later, it was not an established tactic. Right. He had tactical sense as quick as he saw. On the spur of the moment. Well, yeah, on the spur of the moment. I'll get across and we can shoot them up if they come directly in the open after us. If you don't mind, because this is your first mission, but this is a classic SOG mission. <laughs> yes. And then we are going back to the book. I love this book, by the way, Thank in case you, you can't tell. Um, then we were above the trees, and I was totally out of ammunition. That terrible place blended back into the jungle. Just another grassy spot in a valley full of grassy spots. Kwong turned toward me and smiled. Smack! Thunk! He collapsed into a groaning ball, blood everywhere. Ben tore off his web gear while I pulled off his shirt. An AK slug had penetrated his buttocks and exited the center of his stomach, spilling his intestines through a gaping wound. 
it took two pressure bandages to cover the wound, but worst of all, we could do nothing about the internal bleeding. Since George, our talented medic, was aboard the other ship treating Ha, we tried to divert Kwong's agony during the ride to Dr. To, lighting a cigarette for him, pouring water on his intestines to keep them moist. And so you were able to get out of there, but just even at that last minute, you never know what kind of peril you're going right. to come up against. And this is, I hesitate to call it that, little known fact. If you have exposed intestines and let them dry, they're like potato chips, I and mean, they'll crack. And that's even worse. He has enough problems already, so you've got to keep them moist. Right. I never, this is a vital fact I never thought about, yeah. uh, intestinal moisture. Yes. Literally. Literally. <laughs> so that was your welcome to the Prairie Fire AO. That it was. Wow. So um, so back it up a little bit for us. Um, what brought you to SOG in the first place? And uh, from the from the hills or the flatlands of many Minnesota, Yes. you get into the Army at some point and you decide that someday I want to wear that funny hat that keeps neither the sun nor the rain out of your eyes. <laughs> and it's uh, hot in the summer and cold in the winter. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to jump school at uh, Fort Benning and... A special forces, I think it was a sergeant first class. This is 1967. 67. So he stepped before our formation in the morning. It was 43rd Company. And he spoke for about two minutes. Basically, if you're interested in going into special forces, he was conducting a test that night. So I went to take the test. And it was unlike any test I'd ever taken. It was very strange that he would read you scenarios, just like out of... uh, um, Mission Impossible. Oh, is that right? Right, right. Except there was no burning and and a, a <laughs> the record burning up. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was things like, okay, you're at this railroad yard. You're supposed to blow up the track. Where are you going? How are you going to approach it? And I mean, it was open ended. There wasn't a choose A, B, or C. You had to dis- decide these things. And uh, at the end of the test, I had scored quite well. But then the NCO realized I had enlisted in the Army at age 17. Only, hey, that's, I was crazy. But there were a lot of fathers in the neighborhood I came from who were World War II vets. This was a uh, blue-collar neighborhood in Minneapolis. Right. So it seemed natural. The nation needs us. Off we go. What was unnatural was volunteering for airborne infantry in the first place. (laughs) But nevertheless, took the test, and he found out that I was actually too young. Mm. And uh, he looked over the test. He looked at me. He looked at the test. And I reassured him, oh, well, I'd be 19 by the time I finished training. And he looked at the ceiling. <laughs> he said, okay. <laughs> but, but at that time, originally, Special Forces, you had to be at least an E5 on your second tour in the Army. But as a reflection, not not that they were throwing out the standards, but as a reflection of casualties in Vietnam, they needed people. They had a, a great need, trained people, good people, but they needed people. Right. So they had relaxed it to the level of E4, and I snuck in as an E3. Indeed. And, and was an of, E4 shortly thereafter. And that eventually, they called that the baby SF all officially at that time. Right. 
which today is the X-ray program, more or less. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. So, anyways, your baby son, literally, you get by to all these hurdles, and then what? So you get through jump school. Right. Off to off to Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Right after that. Right, and went through phase one, which was really difficult. It was. It is the phase where people wash out for physical reasons, and we probably lost at least a third of the guys. Where you're living in a field environment and going down the Torres Trail, as it was called oh. back then, waist-deep swamp, and it's deep mud, and you're trudging along with a rucksack and so on. Physically, a number of guys couldn't take it, and also they looked at it in the future. If this is what Special Forces is, do I want to have any part of it? And they left, left. But after that, it was academic. You had to pass various kinds of, of courses. For example, that was the only course I ever knew of in the United States Army where if you failed land navigation, you were out. You had to be a Green Beret. You had to be able to find your place on the map exactly. Land navigation was critical to survive. It was critical. And, and the amazing thing is, on our operations in Laos, we were in an area as heavily jungled and as remote as the eastern Congo at that time. I mean, it was, there was nothing there except the NVA. Yet, I never once knew of a recon team at our place or your place, CCN, to have become lost. They knew where they were because of that training. And good little people. And good little people. Our indigenous troops. In my case, I depended on them a lot, particularly about, where am I, Sal? (laughs) And he pulled a map out and say, here we are. But (laughs) So, um, and what was your MOS training? My MOS training was a uh, 05 Bravo Camo which to my surprise, I, I volunteered for weapons training and uh, the colonel commander of the training group interviewed us one at a time to find out what we wanted to go into. Really? Oh, yes. And wow. he asked, well, uh, let's see here, Private Plaster, what do you want? And I said, sir, I have read Small Arms of the World my whole life since I was a little kid and I really want to be a weapons man. He said, you know what? You're going to be a great combo man then. <laughs> Because you already know about all those weapons. They had, just by coincidence, they had a bunch of slots for combo training, so off I went. Eventually, I did get SFMOS qualified as a 1-1-B-4-S. But my formal training at Fort Bragg was as a ditty bum, dum dum ditty, we called them. 05-B-4-S, indeed it was. Weren't you one as well? Indeed, combo geek. Yep, like you, yeah. Yep, yep. I got recycled. Unlike you who went into combo, you went through and trained up. I right. had to get recycled. <laughs> it was hard. <laughs> oh, it yeah. It was very hard because <laughs> you had recording code and then meeting the, I think it was 18 minutes or 18 groups per minute. 18 word groups per sending minute. For sending and yeah. 20 receiving. And that oh. was a, a black and white standard. If you didn't meet it, they recycle. At Eva Dirty, you're out there. You get recycled or out the door. In our case, they needed folks. And by that time, we had enough training that they recycled us and we lucked out and made it. And the ridiculous thing is, in retrospect, they stopped using CW after that, Morse code. And how many times did you use it in Vietnam? Never. Never. Once. <laughs> but it was always fun, like to go to the drive in and be sending a message to somebody else. Da 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 da. 
<laughs> Somebody um, else had a card. Da, 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 you know. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Diddy dum dum diddy. Yep. 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 <laughs> so um, you graduate, then from there to where? Went to the Seventh Special Forces Group. Was at that time? Was that Bragg? I was at Bragg, and uh, despite being a commo man, when I arrived, Sergeant Major, Company Sergeant Major, asked. Is there anybody, we, like four or five of us arrived once, is anybody here really like weapons? I do. <laughs> and it was to run the uh, arms room, except each of those companies in the seventh group had a cross-training responsibility for the other companies. Ours was weapons. So instead of just having 45s and M16s, we had Sten guns and Schmeissers and... Uzis, everything <laughs> under the sun. I was, I'd spend my day polishing them, learning how to take them apart, reassemble them. Right. It was, it was like being kept in the candy shop. <laughs> but I was, was all only, those boy toys. Right. Absolutely. And uh, I was there about six months. And I, I had heard off and on that there was this woman in the Pentagon who loved special forces. Her name was Mrs. Alexander. As in Billy. Billy Alexander. <laughs> and if you could get your hands on her phone num number and call her up, she might be able to get you on orders to Vietnam to the 5th Special Forces Group. Indeed. So I went to a uh, phone booth there at Bragg one afternoon, called up. Sure enough, I talked directly to her, and she said, I'll see what I can do. Very pleasant lady. Nice, nice lady. And lo and behold... About a month later, orders appeared, assigning me to the yeah. Special Forces Group. Now, when I arrived in country, you know, throughout the time that I was in training, we'd hear once in a while these three letters, S-O-G. And if you ask somebody, what does that mean? They'd say, you know, I don't know. Or just get back in class. Yeah, it wasn't yeah. in the book, the Green Berets. How no, could we know? No, how could we know? Yeah. And the, well, <laughs> you could tell some of them knew, but they weren't going to tell you. But right. many of them hadn't the slightest idea. And I'm talking about old captains and staff sergeants, sergeants first class, master sergeants. They they would not tell you. They, yeah, because by that time, we had SF guys that had been in Nam two and three tours of duty already. Roger that. But... The rumor was that SOG did the real shit. Whatever it was, the real shit, the special forces stuff, the cool stuff. Okay. Nobody said the most dangerous shit you could imagine. Yeah, they talked about the KIA, right? Yeah. Oh, God, no, we didn't hear anything about that. But anyway, so I arrived in Vietnam, went up to Nha Trang, which was the 5th Special Forces Group headquarters. My my. Good best friend of Special Forces, Glenn Uyamura, a Hawaiian, who unfortunately, like every Hawaiian, is called pineapple during training. Oh, no, really? Oh, poor guy. Yeah, once he got in, in Vietnam, nobody did. But. Yeah, no. But anyway, so uh, I volunteered for C&C. We had been at the uh, uh, Project Delta Club one night, and a guy I knew, Glenn and I knew, who arrived in Vietnam earlier, sat down with us. We were having a couple drinks, and uh, he said, how would you like to do the real shit? Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> I said, What's that? <laughs> Just, I can't tell you. Ooh. I said, but how, how do I? He says, Just volunteer for C&C. &C. 
I, I said, well, you can't tell me anything? And the other guy, there was another CCN guy there, and he says, well, you're going to get killed anyway, so you may as well get a good deal out of it, which included a week of stand-down anywhere in South Vietnam between missions and all kinds of neat little giveaways, freebies that you could take home with you, by weird clothes and, and knives and who knows what which I didn't know at that time, but he just said there's some really good deals. So I volunteered. <laughs> and a couple days later, there was a NCO came in from the S1 office, from uh, that's personnel office, yeah. fifth group headquarters. And there were like 12 of us who had arrived together sitting around this table. And uh, he passed out little slips of paper with everybody's assignment. And uh, Glenn got CCN, another friend of ours got CCN. And I looked at mine, it's at Signal Company. It's because I did well in combo training. Right. Oh, oh Signal Company is there. And it's basically manning radios on a schedule 12 hours a day for that whole time. And, you know, it's the rear echelon <laughs> of the rear echelon. So I looked and I thought, I crimpled it up, put it in my pocket. And that NCO said, <laughs> Did everyone get your assignments? I, said, I didn't get mine. I said, I was supposed to go to CCN with Glenn. <laughs> he got out an identical piece of paper, just jotted down CCN and handed it to me. And that, <laughs> that was it. I heard about wanting to get in the CNC and the SOG uh, before, but never like that. But I never That's knew. That's a classic. Even as I volunteered, I didn't know that CNC was SOG. Right. Because of the cover stories and the classification. Sure. <laughs> And then you came to the top secret briefing. Right, right. It was um, quite the flamboyant. Oh, Colonel Warren. Colonel Jack Warren. <laughs> we arrive up in Denang at CCN, and nobody has briefed us. Until they brief you, nobody really wants to talk to you. You know better and than so the last And so by now, questions. you're in the fall of 1967. Fall of 67. Right. 68. Fall of 68. Okay. Correct. Because I'd gone through jump school the previous year. And then That's I went right. through all the SF training and stuff. But, That's why um, I need you to be accurate. I Thank you. To remind you. <laughs> yeah. But, but don't hesitate to, to inter, interrupt me and help me stay accurate. <laughs> but nevertheless, uh, eventually, like a day, after, a day after we arrived, we were ushered into this little briefing room at CCN. And there's this map on the wall we can tell on a big screen a big curtain hanging over it saying top secret well we're just sitting here we don't know what, yeah what, what are we going to do who are we in came colonel uh, uh warren jack warren colonel jack warren and this colonel this is just amazing he was wearing shower shoes jungle fatigue pants a black windbreaker in a green beret, and he was using a... Uh, um, cigarette holder? A cigarette holder, yeah. yes. You uh, you knew him, so... Yeah. And a cigarette holder. So he comes in, he says, Hi, I'm Jack Warren. <laughs> <laughs> Not Colonel. Hi, no, I'm Jack. No, no, he says, Hi, I'm Jack Warren. We're looking at each other. You know, Lieutenant Colonel is a big deal. Oh, yeah. I mean, you just didn't You don't see that kind of rank very in, often. Well, in, at Bragg or anywhere in the yeah. Army. You don't see... Lieutenant Colonels, 05s, could just um, drop him by and say, hi, I'm Frank. So he walks over to that curtain and he pulls it aside. And I'm looking at, he's not saying anything. He's puffing his 
for, for dramatic effect. Indeed. He's puffing on his cigarette. And we look at here on the right side, the right firehand side, here is South Vietnam. And there's the South China Sea. But actually, the, the left west. half, all <clears throat> the left half of that map is clearly to the west of Vietnam. And there are all these little boxes about that. Big. Six by six. Six kilometers by six kilometers. You know, boxes drawn with grease pencil on there. And little code names written beneath them. He says, welcome to Mac V. Sock. He says, right now, and he's using his cigarette holder as a pointer. <laughs> says, now that's team, I don't know, Idaho right now. Right. They're west of the DMZ, about six kilometers. Uh, they're looking for an enemy cache site. This team down here, recon team Rattlesnake, whatever it is, he said, they're on road watch. They're supposed to count the number of trucks go past tonight. And I just go, shit, that's Laos. We're putting guys in Laos, which supposedly was neutral. Yeah, quote neutral. Quote neutral. And then I realized up to that point, I didn't know. I was in SOG. I was actually in that secret organization. C and C, those were just cover names. And although we were assigned on paper, the 5th Special Forces Group, we actually were detached. Uh, detached. Yeah. And elements, the field elements of SOG. So I initially I left, I thought, wow, this <laughs> is fantastic. Because as a kid growing up, I'd read all these books about the resistance in World War II, the Norwegian resistance. I grew up in a Scandinavian neighborhood and the tales of the resistance and how they raided that uh, Hydro-Norsk plant right. to set back the German nuclear program. I thought, wow, I'm finally in the right place at the right time in my life. Indeed. You landed in the high clover. Yeah, but I didn't realize how serious this shit was. Initially... Yeah. Uh, I, I was just euphoric because here I was where I wanted to be. But it got real after that. And so then you, for a little bit, you go to Da Nang FOB4, and then you get ultimately, did you get any time on the ground there, or did you go no, right down to Contum? Not right down, but right. shortly thereafter. Sure. Then uh, down to Contum, uh, FOB2 at the time, right. before it became CCC in 69. And, you know, I'd ask you beforehand, maybe we shouldn't discuss this, but I want to mention it. Yeah. My first team, uh, I was training with a team leader. I had no idea. I mean, I'm new to SOG. Sure. So he, This is at Contum now. This is at right. Contum. It was Recon Team New Mexico. Ooh. I, I, I feel obligated to tell their story. Absolutely. So the team leader, whose name was Stevens, and he was present. I went out a few days, you know, training with him. And supposedly, because he had a guy down going through the SOG Recon School at Camp Longton near Ty, uh, Saigon, he was, we were not going to get a mission until this guy came back. And that'd be, I don't know, a week or two. Right. So we're training along, and all of a sudden, we're called into the S3. This is war, partner. If they need you, they're going to take you, okay? Right. We were assigned a target, whether those guys are back or not. Really? Right. So total cherry. I did not realize it at the time. This would be Stephen's first mission. Oh, he is as a one zero as as a recon man. Right. As a recon man, which typically a guy would have five, eight, ten missions before being considered. And not, not everyone was 
considered as a team leader, but they were so short of personnel due to casualties, and there were so many demanding missions to run that Stevens was immediately appointed as a 1-0 because he was a little older and you would assume he had good judgment and so yeah. on. But when 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 the shit hits the situ- fan, well, well, when the situation demands, you do what has to be done. Well, they targeted us, so we only had a few days of training, and we went up to Docto. We flew by Huey up to Docto. And for for our listeners, Docto is the launch site. That is the launch site. That's where our helicopters would refuel. Um, where you they would a, launch, and from. you would get a final briefing there with our air assets of your team leader, right? Yeah, right. So, anyways, we're up at Doc Toe, and it's they've just called over the radio saying that Cubby, the forward air controller, is out of the AO. He has seen the uh, the weather. He has looked at our insert LZ, and things are good to go. And just then, another Huey is landing, about not even a hundred yards away. And out of it, step two guys with rucksacks and weapons. I don't even know. Well, they come over and they huddle with Stevens. They were their names were Simmons and Bullock. So it's Stevens, Simmons, and Bullock. And Steve, I don't know what's going on. So Stevens comes over to me and says, "You're gonna, you're not gonna go on this mission." I said, "What? I mean, I, it was t- in my mind. Oh yeah, you're on the team. This is open. Hey, this is opening day of hunting season, and you're saying that you're you're rejecting or withdrawing my license. You're revoking. Yeah. It. He says, the helicopter cannot carry all of us, including you. I have to leave one man behind. He says, these two guys I know, they've just graduated from one zero school down near Saigon." So we're going. We can all fit in one chopper, which he thought was really important. And so it's only one helicopter coming into the LZ. So tail between my legs, I waved to them as they flew away. And that night, you know, I flew back to Contum, went yeah. to the empty team room. I was really disgusted, took off my rucksack, thought. Yeah, WTF. Yeah, not chosen for baseball, okay? Yeah. Next morning, a runner comes over from the recon company headquarters said, hey, uh, First Sergeant and Sergeant Howard want to see you right now. And I, I go over there. And, and this is I, Sergeant Howard, Sergeant Bob Howard. Bob Howard, yes. Medal of Honor recipient. Indeed. Greatest guy in the world. Yeah. Great warrior. But uh, so I go over there, and I'm, I'm thinking they're going to put me to work on some stupid Or worse, task. combo. Oh, well, <laughs> it's not going to be good. <laughs> well, I had no idea. I mm-hmm. had no idea. I got there, and they said, Team New Mexico was overrun last night. Whoa. He said, we're putting in the bright light team. And I said, well, I'm still not bright light. What does bright light mean? And overrun. He said, hey. Yeah. And for, you are and, the and, only the recon team. New Mexico is you. Wow! And then for our listeners, a bright light is a mission designed where a recon team goes in to help a team that's down or for down pilots. And when they go, they don't take any food. They take extra ammo and body bags. And and they did recover the bodies. Really? Yeah. So that was actually my first recon team, but I never even got on the ground with them. Wow! And. Uh, I, I, 
you know, I'm not a very religious person. Right. But I felt like there had been intervention up at Doc Toe. I was ready to climb into the helicopter and go. Sure. And then that other chopper came in with the guys and they left. And that was the last time they were alive. Wow. They got overrun at night. We later, the, after the Bright Light team came back, they figured out looking at the site. The North Vietnamese didn't screw with the bodies and so on. Sometimes they treated our guys with respect. Their bodies, sometimes they didn't. They were, right. they were rotten SOBs. But they treated them with respect. And looking at where they'd been hit, they could tell they, they'd unwittingly left a visible trail from their LZ where they landed. Right. They'd been tracked. Bad guys waited for night, brought folks in, and they hit them with probably three, four RPGs right away, which wounded everybody in the team. And then they assaulted with AKs and, and, and a machine, at least one right. RPD machine gun. But uh, so that you understand what an R RPG is, I mean, that's capable of stopping a tank. We had more guys killed and wounded by RPGs than small arms fire. Is that because, right? Oh, yeah. Because they blasted such and sure. so much shrapnel. It was much more effective than our uh, our laws, light anti-tank weapons, the American equivalent. Sure. But anyway, so that, they never stood a chance. They didn't get a shot off. Is that right? They were hit with RPGs. Boom. Three of them simultaneously fired. They ate it. The bodies were laying there where they'd been in RON. Do you think that was the first time that the NVA sappers were used? Not Any indication? Or just traditional NVA troops? No, no, no. This is counter-recon. Okay. The North Vietnamese had at least a battalion of specially trained counter-recon along the trail. And they probably had one company in each of the major, along each of the major routes, feeder routes as highways coming into South Vietnam, like 922, the Ashaw Valley in Yerevan. Right. And 165, I, I learned a lot. Eventually flying <laughs> Covey, I flew over these places yeah. every day for a year. And uh, 165 came in about due west of uh, Chulai. And finally, right into the Central Highlands, uh, Highway 110. The main feeder route running north-south that was west of there was Highway 92. And that went all the way up to the various mountain passes going into North Vietnam. Mugia, all right, right, right next to uh, Oscar, Oscar 8. Yeah, that, that's Oscar 8. Yeah. Oscar 8, which was a notorious CCN target. Absolutely, yeah. Amazing. So anyways, but the important thing for me was I, I was never before, I understood what combat really is and how serious this was and how unprepared I was. I had all the SF training and inf airborne infantry training and so on, but I better get ready to learn all over again and learn fast. And the best classroom I found, and I'm sure you'll say the same thing. <laughs> the clubhouse. It was the NCO club. Indeed. Which when guys came back from their missions, after the debrief, they'd come over to the club and have a few drinks. And I would quietly, because I had nothing to say, right? Oh, yeah. I would quietly sit and listen to them unfold the mission and the tactics they'd seen and how they counted it and so on and so on. I'm writing mental notes throughout this so I, I can understand what I better better know. I know the feeling. Okay, yeah, exactly. Absolutely. So I ate a lot of humble pie. It was no longer Mr. Big Bad Green Beret silliness, and it was no longer confusing it for the Norwegian resistance. 
what that very first mission then when we had two guys shot right. one got almost got his arm shot off another one got gut shot once you saw what it around and a single those, those guys were each hit with just one ak round once you see what that round can do to a human body to a human body <sighs> you know your mindset is there you know you better have your shit together you better be good at what you're doing and in all the sub skills from marksmanship to land navigation to silently moving through the jungle etc cetera, etc cetera. those two missions gave me the mindset for the following years at SOG. wow and and I like to get back to to the first mission when you're on the ground with bacon because right. even the way it ended, there's a unique aspect to your storytelling here that I that I'm fascinated with. Yes, yes. because you came back, you're dirty, you're filthy, uh, the way you described it. Um, I it wasn't until I looked at my dirt smeared face in the latrine mirror that I noticed Kwong's blood sprayed across my jungle fatigues. I thought about our Men's wounds. An AK slug had torn a hole, a lemon-sized chunk, and high thin biceps, leaving the skin hanging hideously. Kwong's wound was worse, and that's the one we had talked about right, with his gut stomach. shot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so you're you're doing this self-inspection, and then you said to yourself, "I thank God it hadn't been me." I threw water on my face, and then noticed a man standing there watching me. Hi, he said. I'm Fred App. I turned and see that he was a lieutenant colonel. He shook my hand and asked, how'd it go out there, tiger? He was short, gray-haired, with intense blue-gray eyes that conveyed an almost grandfatherly sincerity. Until that moment, I had no idea our commander, Lieutenant Colonel Roy Barr, had rotated home and that App was our new commander. You responded, Kind of bad, sir, but we got out of it. He waited for more. I looked in the mirror, critiquing myself. I ran out of ammo. Never again. Fuck carrying a handgun. I need harness space for more magazines and grenades. That's important, he agreed. Anything I can do? They didn't hear my Swedish case, sir. The silencer. Unless I actually shot someone... They didn't even know I was shooting. But when I did shoot this guy, he didn't stay dead. Nine millimeter sucks. I need a weapon that when I shoot somebody, they go down and they stay down. Sir, I need a car 15. He patted me on the back. I'll see what I can do. And he left. Amazing. And, of course, he was one of the best uh, he was a fine, fine CNC guy. commanders during yes. the eight-year secret war, just an yes. outstanding soldier, and a World War II vet. World War II vet sometimes in the club. Did, to get an idea of how <laughs> down-to-earth he was, Yeah, he had a horseshoe pit made with horseshoes shipped from the States by somebody. <laughs> and anybody who wanted to go play horseshoes with him, you know, he'd play horseshoes in the evening. Was he any good? He was very good. Oh, yeah. <laughs> But within a day or two, lo and behold, I got a car 15. <laughs> From and, the, and who was the supply sergeant at that time? Oh, God. I, yeah, I do. Oh, was it it's that, hard to remember. Was it that Sergeant Bob Howard? <laughs> no, he was already, he'd already been replaced as a supply sergeant. And the incredible thing about Bob Howard, uh, 
two DSCs, the Medal of Honor, Silver Stars, eight Purple Hearts. And put hearts. in for three Medals of Honor. Right. And he actually was put in for 11 Purple Hearts, but he only received eight. Right. My God. Because they weren't that, that bad. <laughs> uh, but that anyway, Alabama so, soldier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but, but Howard, um, by that time, was our training NCO okay. in, in the recon company. But if ever there was some heavy-duty shit to do, boom, he was going along. He volunteered. Right. And this final, in fact, his final Medal of Honor mission. He was a strap was, hanger. He was a strap hanger. And this was just a little after the mission I described with uh, my original first team that got overrun. Wow. And that was uh, going after an American MIA. The North Vietnamese laid there and ambushed the hell out of them. But Is that right? Yeah. The guys that came out alive entirely due to Bob Howard. During the night, he even called a, 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 a gunship, an Air Force, either with an AC-130 or AC-119. Yeah, it was back, a, it was back a, in 68, yeah. Or it could have been 69. like... 69. Yeah, sh- oh, 69, okay. It could yeah. have been Shadow, Stinger, or Spectre was out by yeah. then. Yes. Yeah. Called it right across their own position because this was the last chance they had. Really? And he had, he had been burned... He had been hit with a claymore. He had taken one AK round. But he did his damn best. Lieutenant Jerson, who was the platoon leader on that, he got Jerson. He'd been badly wounded. And he dragged him off the hill where all the the dead were and got him down there. And that night, you know, the perimeter was around Jerson. They were trying their best to keep him alive. Yeah. And for the only time I ever knew it to happen, the Hueys came in at night, night. in darkness. A one thirty drop flares, and they actually turned on their lights as they came in, and they got them out of there. Unfortunately, really? yes, yeah. I mean, I, you can do that once in a blue moon, but you're begging for ground fire. Oh, like and live to talk about it. Yeah, but it's so surprised the NVA. Sure, as they didn't know what to do. You're doing WTF, and meanwhile the Hueys getting in, they're getting those guys out. Right. And unfortunately, Lieutenant Jerson died. Oh. But it could not be said that Howard did not risk his life over and over to get him out of there. Right. Alive. Yeah. That was his Medal of Honor mission. Wow. And that was the third one that he was put in for that he finally got it. And then the other two were just distinguished service crosses. Yeah. The second yeah, highest yeah. medal for valor. Right. Amazing soldier. Actually, one of those was downgraded to a silver star. Oh, is that right? Yeah, and he, if you actually read <laughs> the citations, yeah, it's debatable which one should be the Medal of Honor. You know, oh, just, is that right? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. I just oh, incredible action. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. And he lived to talk about it. Indeed, he did live for, for many years. I was at his uh, funeral, and uh, uh, what the hell do they call it? His burial mm-hmm. at Arlington National Cemetery. Formal burial detail there? Yeah, with a burial detail. Indeed. And it was uh, uh, quite a day for special forces. Everybody was represented. Uh, in fact, there was a motorcycle escort that brought in the hearse. And then they put them on the um, art- artillery. The caisson? Caisson. Yeah. With soldiers marching in front of him to his grave. Wow. And uh, several general officers from special forces were there. We were all very well represented. But what angers me about the, the, the story of Bob Howard is I knew he had been approved for the Medal of Honor 
and I came home on leave. I completed a year. I think it was my first leave. Yeah, your first home, year in CNC. First year in CNC. And I knew Howard was receiving the Medal of Honor. And I knew the day. I forget how I found out. I, somebody told me or tracked it down. And that night, I turned on the network news. That was the day he was at the White House and received it. No. Next, I've seen still pictures. I know. Oh, sure, yeah. It was right there in the Oval Office. Yeah. It was not on ABC. It was not on NBC. It was not on CBS. It wasn't in the newspapers. Really? The, the anti-war crap in this country was so heavy by the time he actually received his Medal of Honor that there were decision makers in the media deciding that to honestly present a hero was to glorify war, and they wanted none of that. Wow. This was... No kidding. God, he was cheated. He was cheated. Yeah. The nice thing is, for about the last seven, eight years of his life, people knew who he was. Absolutely. I think both of us went out of our way to make sure that happened. Well, yeah, in my case, I had minimal involvement with him. Only actually had one phone call many years ago. Okay. Short and sweet and to the point. <laughs> he didn't have no time to be yeah. talking about anything but the question. And, uh, oh, my God. But I do know once he got back to the States and he'd received his medal and so on, he, he was a little troublesome, you could say. <laughs> Hard to control. He received a commission. Originally, we knew him as a sergeant first class. And it's funny because he he refused to be a second lieutenant. He told him, keep your commission. I don't want one. Oh, is that right? Right. It's like in my case, I got a commission. <laughs> yeah. I had to take second lieutenant. Yeah. Because yeah, that little butter bar, to be a staff <laughs> sergeant and then become a second lieutenant sucked. Oh. But he was a sergeant first class and a, 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 a soon-to-be Medal of Honor recipient. They wanted him to be a second lieutenant. He said, nope, I don't want anything to do with it. And lo and behold, somebody found one of those little silver bars for a first lieutenant. Yeah. And then he was promoted to captain like within a year. But when he got back stateside, uh, initially he was the the commander of, I think it was Ground Week, at Jump School. He was commander of Ground Week at Jump School. Uh, and then he ended up at Bragg. And Bob Howard, I loved him, uh, the finest man I've ever known. Uh, and if you were going on the ground and knew that he was back there at FOB, you knew that no matter how bad the situation was, he would come out there to get you. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But he was also one of those guys, I heard it said, that you keep in a wall locker. Between, between wars, and then you open it, wave them out, and like send like him General the Patton, yeah, kind of like that. Yeah, you get out of his way. I mean, he was a human oh. dynamo. But anyways, at Bragg, they safely assigned him to run Camp McCall and the training out there. He put through a whole generation of special forces. No kidding. Through through training group. Okay, uh, out there sure. Camp McCall. Yeah, that's the last phase of Special Forces training. First phase. No, he's the first phase. Oh, first phase, phase 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 one. Okay. But it's funny because I was uh, out in Washington for the long after the fact award of the Medal of Honor to Mike Rose, who was also there at Contum. 
And this was only a couple of years, three years ago, four years ago. And uh, as part of the procedure, you, you go around to various places where their honor, you know, their honors bestowed to them. Right. President Trump had given a Medal of Honor, and the next day there was a reception at the Pentagon. And lo and behold, here is General Miley. He was not yet the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Right. He's the head of the receiving line, but he was already the designated. Right. right. He was Chief of Staff of the Army. And uh, I go up to him and say, sir, how do you do? I'm John Platt. He said, I know who you are. <laughs> really? I said, really? Yeah. He said, he read my books. <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> all, here's all the amazing them. thing. Here's the amazing. <laughs> no, he read Sog and Secret Commandos. But here's the amazing thing. Bob Howard put him through phase one special forces training. No. And we stood there for a couple minutes yeah. just talking about Bob Howard. <laughs> and he said he was the hardest man he ever met, that he'd wear a rucksack and do runs, and he was always leading. He's never saw anyone run faster with a rucksack on. Yeah. I heard it from many people. Oh, oh. <laughs> he had miracle knees. He kept running. <laughs> well, I, I, well, we know about my knees. Yeah. No. But Howard, Howard was magnificent. I just hard charger hardcore courageous amazingly courageous well that that if you don't mind i'd like to go back to your book a little bit because there's another moment where you had a direct contact with uh bob howard we should have called him bright light bob he ran on so many bright lights right, right to going back to help our people or down pilots you had been running recon for a while and you were a member of by this time rt illinois right and um they had a target alpha one and you guys were waiting for the weather. Another team, this time, RT Arkansas, was wiped out. Right. And so there's that psychological impact across recon whenever we lose a team. Right. So you're dealing with that. You come back to base. You finally relax a little bit. And then you get sick as a dog. And right. you're ill with some kind of fever uh, you lost 20, uh, 22 pounds in one day. Baxillary dysentery? dysentery. Good God, what you is know, that? I didn't realize how serious dysentery can be. Yeah. Because we as Americans look at it. We don't face it here. You look at it, well, you got the shit. Yeah. Give them a, Take some know, kale, and go yeah, home. Yeah, can, that can kill you. You pick it up from bad water. Ooh. The fact that I think another name for it is blackwater fever. I was on a mission in Cambodia when I came down with that during the American invasion because we were drinking during dirty your water. Second, second or third tour of duty? Second tour. Second tour, okay. I mean, anyhow, <laughs> we were there supporting the, the invasion of Cambodia. So I right. was running out of CCS, Command and Control South. And we were out of water. And down there, they're not, unlike up in Laos, there are not a lot of streams and mountains. No. It's flat country and hard to find water. Well, one of my yards said he could smell water and i believed him so he got out his banana <laughs> knife you know it's a big yeah uh, uh working knife like a machete or something like a machete yeah and he just started digging there in this spot and after he dug about that low that deep water started no yeah so they dug a couple more and we were filling our canteens up and i was the only one that got dysentery out of that no iodine tabs um I think maybe we were drinking before we put the iodine tabs. We'd gone two yeah. days without water. Really? I just it was oh terrible. Yeah, yeah. 
So anyways, I was recovering from that. All right. So you're sick. You're down for two days. You lose your 22 pounds from dehydration and whatever else is hitting you. So you finally wake up. I, I'm going back to the book. Sure, sure, sure. I looked up to see Bob Howard. He wished me a quick recovery and told me that he had a long talk with John Allen, who at that point had been the 1-0 right. prior yep. on Illinois. And uh, John had an outstanding record. Fearless, great leader. Fearless, just amazing the best man. of the best, yes. Right. And uh, so after what John had been through, uh, he had they thought it best to send him down to the Long Ton for some training. So Bob tells you, John's going down to Long Ton to instruct Recon 1-0 school. They could use a good man like him down there. And so in your mind, you're asking yourself, well, what about Illinois? Bob has the answer. RT Illinois is yours now. You're the one zero, John. Take a couple weeks and train them up. And like, what did that feel like? Had you, you were, you were ready at that time? Or were you a little bit surprised well, with this? Of course, coming out of the illness and everything and the fever. Well, prior to that, I did not want to be a one zero. There's right. incredible life and death decision making on the ground. And people, we often had people killed. I, I had told myself over and over again, I never want to be more than a 1-1. That's the assistant team leader. Yeah. He's at the back of the formation constantly. I liked it back there. I liked it back there. <laughs> You're ready to ambush trackers or something, covering up the back trail. Yes. And if you were doing something offensive, you were there. You were the gunfighter, purely a gunfighter. The 1-0 team leader is making decisions, trying to keep everybody organized, trying to outwit the enemy. The one-two is packing the radio, but then you got the gunfighter. Well, I thought that was just fine. But then I realized I'd reached the point where I, I knew enough, and I think I could make the decisions. It was time to be a one-zero. There were a lot of guys that never became one-zero. Oh, yeah. They didn't want it. And there were good men, but there is incredible amount of responsibility. Because once you go on the ground, you're the ground commander. You're, it's out free play. The NBA can do anything. You can face five men. You can face 500 men. And it's their backyard. You have to make judgments every day in their life and death. But finally, after coming out of that, Bob Howard telling me, yeah, I was ready. I, I needed that. Indeed. So you put together a team. You have some historic members. Norm, was Norm Doney no, on Norm, your team? No, no, no. He okay. was he was a recon first sergeant. Oh, I'm sorry. At that time. Yeah, I Norm Doney, so he was an old you. Project Delta team leader. Right. Which one of his missions was actually in one of those men's magazines back then. Like <laughs> his Delta mission, which was really? classified. Yeah. Yeah. I in fact I eventually got a copy of it. I think it was Saga S A G A magazine. Right. Yeah. It was like True Magazine or but they have war stories. They have war stories where he had led his recon team into, uh, I think it was uh, down somewhere west of Saigon, and crept up on North Vietnamese in a morning formation Ooh. and called artillery on them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but anyways, he was our first sergeant at that yeah. time. And he went on to great uh, work with the POW MIA issue For years, years later. Totally dedicated to Absolutely. it. Absolutely. And, uh, but um, getting off track, so you become the one zero. And I like, you know, your book, 
Again, if you haven't get everybody's got, if you're interested in SOG, some great stories from the man on the ground while he's there. And then, of course, the history. We're talking about SOG. Again, I encourage everybody. I, there's no way I can read all the stories. <laughs> but there's a couple, you outline a couple of moments in time that uh, people like um, other teams and how things can just change so dramatically. Like uh, RT New York with John St. Martin was on right. a target. Right. They're preparing to do a uh, prisoner snatch and they're setting up, waiting, and they get delayed because of technical things and who else knows what happened. And at one point, um, John St. Martin was getting ready to launch the attack. Or to, it was to following up an airstrike. He just called an airstrike. That's what it was. Ahead of him, yes. Yes, and so uh, at that point, going back to the book, St. Martin pulled a grenade pin and stepped over the log, and he said, we're going in. He shouted into the radio. As he cocked his arm, an NVA fire stitched him. Cack, cack, cack. Ankle, thigh, stomach, whirling him around. His ears rang and the world spun as he pivoted backwards over the log and somehow dumped the empty, the grenade hand, hand harmlessly. Excuse me. Pain nearly paralyzed him. He looked down to see his intestines had spilled out. He knew that few people survived such a wound and began to pray the AK fire as AK fire cracked everywhere around him. And that's just one of those moments. Of course, Ed Wolcott. Yeah, Ed Wolcott. Wolcott. Yep, yep. Thank you. He was on the team. Right. He was the team leader. Right. Yes. And that moment you go from being on the aggressive, getting ready to operate, to getting shot three times with AK. How sudden. And, my God. John would not have survived, except he was a PT nut. He'd been a hell of an athlete in high school. And his father had been UDT in World War II. Really? Yeah, and, and he was a I'm talking about John. John was a sure. boxer. He played football. And he did, he did a lot of PT while he was there at Contum. But he was a strong man. A lot of guys, can you imagine someone who wasn't in that condition being hit three times by AK fire at no. close range? You saw close range with one round of that other mission. Here right. is this guy gets hit three times, and indeed he lived, did live to talk about it. But you have to attribute that to Ed Wolkoff. Ed Wolkoff dragged him, got him out of there, got away far enough that they were able to bring in a ship to pull him out. If, if Ed hadn't been there, Forget it. Probably not. Wow. And, you know, also during that time there, that's just another day in SOG. Our guys getting wounded like that. That happens them all the time. Under fire. Right. And uh, when there's another time when you also had a mission that was in country that in the beginning, it sounded like a mission from hell itself for Ben Het. Right. Right. And uh, give us a little bit. That was bit with of, John Allen. Is, is that right? Right. He was the team leader. Okay. That because that one, th this is different. I've, I was never familiar with our recon teams getting into situations like this or going into a target like that. Right. And uh, so you get brief because Ben Head had been under siege for a long time. Right. They fact, had And they had a mission there, and your mission was? Uh, there was a, uh, a North Vietnamese art 
anti-aircraft artillery unit shooting from a ridge to their south. And aircraft, aircraft could not, supply aircraft, could no longer land on their airstrip, but they would fly and uh, kick, kick bundles out of the tail end of a C-130 or 123. Right, just like, just like Quezon. Just like Quezon. And uh, the North Vietnamese, I mean, they're not fools. They set up their anti-aircraft guns in a pattern to uh, try to hit those aircraft. Well, our mission was, <laughs> was to go find the anti-aircraft guns and hit them with airstrikes. Uh, air right. Which, but that, there were certain missions we went on in country, and it was true for CCN as well, where conventional units weren't capable of doing that. Right. No insult to them. No. But like Joe Walker used to say, it is so intense that it's almost a crime to send someone into that unless they're fully trained and experienced because they're just going to get killed. Right, and think of it, and that includes the hours of, of hot drills going through immediate your immediate action drills, drills immediate right? Immediate reaction drills, everything. We that, did it every day when we weren't in the field. That immediate action drill is, and 99% of the time we did it live fire. Right. That is where it's a reaction, immediate reaction, to contact with the enemy because you're just about always outnumbered. Sure. So what you got to do is throw so much fire concentrated back at them that it's like a bantamweight sucker punching a heavyweight and then running like hell. And then you peel, the peel back. The peel back, right. Right. Well, unlike the ranger tactic, which is to attack an ambush, when you're in triple canopy, you can't tell how many people are behind the, in the canopy and your first mood is survive, gain fire superiority while you're doing the peel. Yeah. And that's like, that just doesn't happen overnight. You need to work on that. I mean, it's... it's oh, I'm biased. It's like special, <laughs> it's like special teams in the NFL. Indeed. They yeah. drill on just certain positions, certain maneuvers, and they do it over and over and over again. We did live fire most of the time. You did. And you got guys shooting right beside you. I mean, live fire here, there, boom. Well, I think that at this point in time, with that thought in mind, yes. your training was for another mission that... Again, Chapter 10, Operation Ashtray 2. Yes, sir. And earlier, there had been an attempt. The, the idea was we need a POW from an area of operations that's really hot right now. An earlier team had tried it. They were not able to get a live POW. They shot dead, several of them. <laughs> they refused to cooperate. Oh, no. Potential POWs not cooperating? Yes, potential POWs. <laughs> and this was, they, they had ambushed a convoy, a North Vietnamese convoy. And, you know, whenever you stop the enemy and try, right. try to take them prisoner, well, that, many of them are armed too, and they might not want to go home with you. <laughs> to put it mildly. <laughs> yeah. Well, unfortunately, those yes. guys ended up having to shoot, and there were no live NVA left. So with that thought in mind, S3 or S2 comes to you and says, John, it's time for RT uh, Illinois to, to kick it up a notch, or were you part I was of a- RT California by then. Oh, that time, okay. Right, which I'd gone, when I went home, I had RT Illinois for, right. for a leave, and they got shot up bad while I was gone. Oh, no. They promised they weren't going to yeah. send them in, okay? Oh, no, we'll just let them rest while you're home on leave. No. Yeah. Well, lo and behold. Oh. So you're demands of war. They, get they hurt. needed yeah. another. They needed a team to go in somewhere, so they put them in. 
And Illinois was one of the original uh, SOG recon teams from the early day. They've been running by that point. This is five years. Yeah, but they, they'd had replacements. Among yeah, of course, yeah. Years too. yeah. Hell, they had to replace two of our guys. Right. But uh, but anyway, so Willie Murkison, who a DSC recipient from the Mike Force and our company, recon company commander, took him in along with a strap hanger named Weems. They're both good men. I mean, yeah. Willie is the best. And we went on to another interesting career after that. <laughs> But uh, but anyhow, they turn they they knew that they were being being monitored, mm-hmm. tracked. That the NVA had been moving around them, right? And they'd had one small contact, but as happened sometimes, they broke that contact and they were going to continue the mission. Well, this is the day after that small contact, and they're taking a break next to Highway One Ten, within Ooh. sight of it. Yeah, they're sitting there. All of a sudden, here come multiple trucks. Gates drop and out jump all these NVA and they immediately assault them. Whoa. So I had two of my indig killed right there. My point man and my indigenous team leader wow. killed right away. Uh, Wombs got, Weems was wounded and I'm pretty sure, well, uh, oh, the, the, the acting team leader right. uh, was wounded as well. And they got out, but I think they had to leave the bodies because the NVA were just everywhere, and they had to run for their lives. So that is what happened to my team that, oh my that was not going to run any missions while yeah. I was gone. So when I came back, they had a bomb damage assessment mission for <laughs> Recon Team Washington. And explain briefly for our viewers what a BDA is, Okay, BDA, bomb damage assessment. For the first time in American history, out of curiosity, <laughs> they'd put in strategic airstrikes, this time unlike World War II, where yeah. it might be B-17s, this was B-52s. And the Air Force, being the curious organization that it is, yes, said, you know, it'd be nice to have somebody go take a look and see what that did. And they just assumed that all the enemy would be dazed and confused. Right. And suppose and, you just dead. walk in and you'll yeah. take some prisoners, you'll take photograph a couple the pictures, dead, you'll bring and, back yeah. important documents. Well, the reality <laughs> was it's it, that B 52 strike was kind of like taking a stick and whacking it with a, a hornet's nest. Yeah. And then that guy runs away. And, he grabs you and says, and here you, comes, here comes Mrs. Plaster's little yeah, boy, yeah, John. Yeah. yeah. Would you go see how many of those bees are dead? <laughs> the North Vietnamese could not jump up, you know, 35,000 feet and make life difficult for the B-52 crews, which hats off to them. I, I, they're all great people. Oh, yeah. But we could put in teams on the ground to take a look at it. A little difference but from 35,000 to on the ground. On the ground. So for that one and only mission, I took in Recon Team Washington. Oh, really? Okay. Right. And, yeah. And we ended up having to call in airstrikes after a few days. We, we covered a lot of territory, but that that mission is another story. <laughs> so I'm no longer, I'm already yeah. Recon Team uh, New Mexico, Recon Team Illinois, Illinois. and TD Washington, Washington, and now welcome now, to California. Exactly, Recon Team California, which were really excellent. Those yards. Oh, absolutely. The prior one zero was Joe Walker, another just, legend, a solid uh, legend, a, a, a taskmaster. He trained those guys so well, 
as uh, as one of the previous one zero said, he took them out to the range to uh, see how well they operate, operated their weapons and so on. It was Lloyd O'Daniels. And he said he looked over and he noticed they were watching him to see how well he operated his weapons. <laughs> really? Really. Wow. But anyways, yeah. so uh, now I was 1-0 of Recon Team California with uh, three other, no, two other, three other Americans, which was unusual, but they had the people, so I had sure. three. Which and is rare. Very rare. We usually ran with two or three. Right. But uh, one day, I'm in the team room for something, and a guy, runner, comes in and says, uh, the S3 wants to see you. So I figure I'm going to be assigned some mission. <laughs> and I go in, and there's this captain in there who'd recently arrived. He was a prior Vietnam veteran. He'd been a company commander in the 1st Air Cav. Good guy. He was awarded a Silver Star for his first tour, named Fred Krupa. But he was new to recon. You can't just assume that someone, because of rank or infantry experience, is ready to do that job. Right. But he was a team leader, even though he'd only run about two missions. So Major Jax, who was a great guy too, is really hardcore. He had, as a teenager, fought the Germans in Czechoslovakia as a member of the resistance. And then after the war came to the US and went into SF. But Major Jax had led Ashtray 1. It was a special mission. And he was told he could not do it again because he knew too many secrets. He'd been a staff officer and so on. And Sog was not going to risk his capture again. Right. And he had been uh, S3 up at FOB1 before he came down to FOB2. Roger that. And CCC Contoon. RS3, which made him the operations officer. And he had that. That was his third tour of duty, right? I think it was. Yes. Yes. In Vietnam. So uh, he... I go and I sit down, yes, sir, what can, you know, what can I do for you? <laughs> oh, yeah. And he says, well, this here is Captain uh, Krupa. He's a recon team leader. I think he had New Hampshire. He said, uh, we're planning another ashtray mission. We have, we're, they badly needed a particular POW just west of the Central Highlands of South Vietnam. There had been several briefings in Saigon where through various sources, electronic uh, intercepts, radio intercepts, aerial reconnaissance, they had determined there were quite a few convoys and troops moving along the trail toward the Central Highlands. They wanted to know what they were up to. So the commander of U.S. forces talked personally to Chief Sog, Steve Cavanaugh. Uh, and wanted him to figure out a way to get some intel. So we're talking about General Abrams talking to Colonel Stevens. Directly to, Con- uh, right. to Steve Cavanaugh, right. who right. was the uh, Chief Sog. Chief Sog, he was the commander of Sog down yeah. in Saigon, which that's where we actually took our orders from. It was Although we wore Green Berets and we were members of the 5th Special Forces Group, the reality was that covertly we worked for Sog. So the... Um, the mission is, as as Colonel Kavanaugh envisioned it very in a very wise way, instead of just going out and grabbing some POW somewhere, some NVA, and bringing them back, if you wanted to find out what's going on 
you grab the lead truck driver of a convoy, <laughs> which is what Ashtray 1 had attempted to do. But right. they had to kill everybody. <laughs> well, that's, this is war. These things happen. And because he was the lead truck driver, these guys were like permanently assigned for that section of the trail. He was responsible for picking up whatever it was for his whole convoy and then leading it to wherever their drop-off points are, the cache sites, turning them over to porters to carry himself right. down, whatever. So he would know what the cargo has been. He would know where it has been coming from and he would know where it is going. Well, as I said, the first mission, they unfortunately had to open up on all of them. But now for Ashtray 2, it was going to be a combination of two teams, Fred, Fred Krupa's and John Plaster's. I had already run quite a number of missions and been a 1-0. Right. He said, you're in charge, which that was one of the great things of SOG is it did not matter how many, how much, what your rank was. It was a meritocracy. Time on the ground. Time on the ground. Number of missions and, and not just, you know, cakewalk missions, right. real missions. And uh, Fred just hadn't had that much experience. He's a good man, no question about it. He, and it was never a problem working together. He was a captain. Sure. Um, so we we trained. We figured out, how are you going to do this? How do you stop? Our plan was focused on one truck, the lead truck. And as far as any others, it was blocking them. So reaction forces couldn't come after us, or at least delay them. We tried various techniques. We tried foolishly to, it turned out foolish, to try dropping a tree <laughs> in front of them where right. you, you have a charge at the base. And then but how kicker. you drop a tree quickly and, oh, and yeah, efficiently. This, it, it can be done. It can yeah. be done. With, you cut it with a charge low, and simultaneously with debt cord, you have a charge up high, and it cuts and pushes it down. Oh, yeah. We did it a few times. Okay, well, <laughs> Lynn we did it, but it, it just... <laughs> It was not dependable. It might twist a funny way. Maybe the guy would jam the brake. Who knows what? So eventually we came upon a technique that had been used by John Grant in the first ashtray mission, which was to, to create a semicircle of claymore mines linked with debt cord so that when you detonated one, they all simultaneously went off and focused it. <laughs> <clears throat> so right beside the road, you focused it into the road where you would knock off or knock down that front tire. And remember, the back tires, they stay rigidly going forward, but the, you know they steer Can't with steer. the front, yeah. and he won't be able to steer. <laughs> so that was our technique, and we practiced it. Well, the first guys were able to actually blow up a perfectly good two-and-a-half-ton truck in training. <laughs> we couldn't. You know, we were the cut rate. <laughs> ashtray too but we trained heavily for it i mean we'd spent nothing but a, a solid full week day after day after we'd worked out the plan exercising that plan live firing uh contingencies truck coming right truck coming left uh the enemy is broken through they're trying to flank all kinds of contingencies and we actually practice these uh, what happens if the, the driver is dead, but there's a live guy beside? All kinds of contingencies. Right. So that no matter what happens, as quick as it happens, we can react to it. Finally, it was time to insert. We inserted about two, a little better than two kilometers south of Highway 110, which is an east-west road running 
into the tri-border area of right. South Vietnam, west of Dok Tho. And we went in on the reverse side of our ridgeline from the highway because that way if they, the helicopters came in low, they wouldn't see or hear them come in. People along the road. Now, if somebody's out there, they would hear them. <clears throat> but right. the North Vietnamese concentrated their defense along the road. They were out there to defend the road, as was there. You could say there was a corridor of security, of reaction forces, counter-recon, And the counter-recon troop, just so we're... One of the things that always the recon teams that you had to deal with right. was a counter... We used to call them uh, hunter-killer teams. Right. They These were trained, North Vietnamese. Right? Yes, and, and they would come in very lightly clothed. Right. And they were highly trained. They knew how to get through the jungle... And they had success several times against our teams. Of course. Sadly. But anyways, that's one and of that the things. that was probably what got my first team, Recon Team New Mexico. Right. But nevertheless, so we, we go in, and the first day's march, we merely cross what was an abandoned enemy base area, uh, probably company size. When the, the North Vietnamese wanted to take a break from fighting in South Vietnam, They'd come cross-border knowing American ground troops could not come after them. Right. They, you know, they're not mm -hmm. stupid. And, but because of B-52 strikes, they dispersed. So you might have one company here, one company there, one company up on the reverse side of that hill, but it's all a single battalion. Sometimes I think what happened to these teams that were hunted down and killed was that they unwittingly landed in a valley that did not seem heavily occupied but all around him was a regiment that was that had been dispersed right and they dispersed them so that if a b-52 uh, we found a, a little base camp or or aerial surveillance aerial recon found one they would only endanger that one base camp but when right. it was time to fight the war i'm getting a little <laughs> carried away <laughs> when it was time to fight the war uh, they reform and go back into South Vietnam. We had not had any indicator of the enemy other than having crossed that uh, abandoned base area. Right. Of course, and again, you guys just walked through a base camp. Yeah. How many people walked through an NVA base camp and luckily nobody was well, there? Well, but you don't just stroll on through. I mean, yeah, you, no. you, it's like a big danger area uh, yeah. where you deploy guys right and left silently yeah. and then send one guy <laughs> running out to little cover, little cover till he gets to the other side. And, right. And then you move tactically through it. But but you you know, I mean, automatically no, I you better an do NVA that. base camp, John. Oh, yeah, I never yeah, did that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we saw base camp, but never walked through one. But yeah. thank you. We're moving right well, on to night uh, two here. Uh, well, I'll tell you this. It was very well constructed. <laughs> Is that right? Oh, yeah. The North Vietnamese are world level diggers <laughs> their corners i mean you you could have used a, 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 what the hell do you call the right hand oh the right uh, the angle yeah, yeah yeah i mean the the corners are right angles yeah Perfect. and there wasn't mess here or there i mean it was all it's hard clay Ooh. oh i mean they spent a lot of time yeah and it was very nice. And someday they'd probably come back and use it again. So they <laughs> they left it the way they yeah they wanted it for the next guy. Indeed. So, anyways, we uh, we went through that, and the second night on the ground, it's probably about ten o'clock p.m. twenty two hundred, and off in the distance, and we're all 
laying out. It's and you're totally on the trail. Dark. Everything's set up. No, 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 no. No, you just you just got to the trail and you're just waiting not yet, to see. Not oh, yet. Okay. This is the, the first night we did not get within right. uh, range of the road. Sure. Because we were like two, three kilometers south. <sighs> and you're moving quiet and slow. I mean, there are days that a whole day and you move 500 meters. Yeah, because you're doing a 10 and 10. You move 10, listen, because that's the most important part is to hear how the jungle's around you. That and... Uh, the enemy is, you've got to be quieter than the enemy if you're yeah. going to sneak up on them. And you can't sneak up. <laughs> I, when I instructed tracking, I used to tell folks, you either move faster than the enemy, or you move, but the byproduct is you're going to leave a lot of sign. Or you move so slowly that you don't make noise and you erase your sign. You sterilize your yeah. back trail when you're moving. Don't try to mix it together. And don't, but keep that in right. mind. Sure, yeah. But anyway, so that second night, about ten o'clock at night, pitch dark, and you can hear this rumble off in the distance to our north. Trucks. Oh. It was trucks. So I sat up and I'm listening, and then I look around and I notice everybody else is up too. They're all sitting up. <laughs> which we have uh, eight Americans and four in ditch. That's a big team. It was a big team, but we had a direct action mission. Sure. You know, it wasn't a recon mission. And you trained up. I mean, to have that kind of training prior. Right. Extensive yeah. training. Yeah. And a very carefully planned ambush. So uh, what's interesting is none of us said a word to each other, but we all knew. Tomorrow showtime. night is going to be showtime. Because we're within <laughs> earshot yeah. of, the, of Highway 110. Yeah. So in the morning, we start very carefully moving forward to the trail to Highway 110. And the North Vietnamese heavily defended their roads. Oh, yeah. Oh, they had all kinds of, of squads and platoons out patrolling generally. They had trackers and so on. But for the roads themselves, you could consider that adjacent to the roads everywhere there was heavy security. Because they didn't want ambushes, they didn't want POW snatches and so on. The closer you got to the road, the closer you, you were getting to a concentration of enemy. So we're down the last 500 meters, maybe, and it's all, almost tippy-toe. Sure. We get up to within 100 meters, and you can just start to see the break in the trees up ahead. And that was going to be our rally point. And 110 is a major highway. It is a major highway. Yeah. The major east-west route coming off the Ho Chi Minh Trail into the Central Highlands. Yes, yeah, not this a little animal it, path. This is no, a trail. No, no, no. This is a road. Road, yes. That Something that used to irritate me was to see these pictures that the media would print about the North Vietnamese and they, these people carrying cases of shells on their backs yeah, yeah. Or, or wheeling their little bicycles and down a little animal path yeah, yeah 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 that's what they do once they got inside south vietnam because if they ran their trucks to south vietnam we'd bomb the hell out of them yeah. and, and <laughs> put in the 101 airborne or something <laughs> indeed so they they had to break it down at the border and they that's where the bicycles started and so on where the real infiltration started but anyways um the rally point is 100 meters south of the highway, and we cache all our rucksacks there, and the medic with the radio. I leave everybody there, but just Fred and I, it's still 1,500 hours, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, 
<coughs> Had you heard much track activity or anything not during at the that day. point? No. Not during the day. Because they stayed off the trails mostly during the day. Because they don't want to be spotted. Yeah. You know, the, <laughs> we, Uncle Sam's we, Air Force. Yeah, they wanted, oh boy, those guys, our pilots wanted nothing more than to go bomb those suckers. But, uh, and they wanted nothing, bad guys wanted nothing more than to shoot them down. Yeah. While they attempted it. But, uh, but anyways, so it's about three o'clock in the afternoon and Fred and I alone, because you don't want to make noise. You don't know if there's, there's some guards on the road along there. So he and I alone took our time. We crept up to the road. From that point, we were not going to leave eyeballing the road where you could clearly see if there any any, any forming anything, any, any activity. Until the ambush, we'd bring the other folks forward. We wouldn't go back. And uh, lo and behold, it surprised me at about 1900, 7 o'clock in the evening. It's still broad daylight. Here came a truck driving by. <laughs> and I, I was angry. I mean, here, how dare you drive by in daylight? Yeah. But I, I believe it or not, I think they timed it for dinner time or the turnover of aircraft on surveillance. <laughs> right. They're no fools. I mean, no. these people are trying to win the war without being killed. You know, they oh, yeah. They study. They want to know. They, their spies are working. And their spies are working, which is a problem we had later. But uh, but anyway, so a little while later, here comes another truck you know, going east to west, heading back deeper into Laos, which undoubtedly was empty. We Ideally, we wanted one going west to east because it has stuff on board. Right. But... Just as well, it was still a lead convoy driver coming the other way. We yeah. had trained for ambushes in either direction. And I remember the second truck came by, and we are, we're pretty darn well camouflaged at this point, hidden in the leaves. And here he came driving by. He looked like he was having a good afternoon. He was singing to himself. <laughs> <laughs> Not, I love no, Ho Chi Minh. Yeah, whatever, whatever he had to say. <laughs> but uh, little realizing that two American commandos had them right in their sights. We could, Ooh. but good for him. Indeed, good for him. It wasn't his time. Not his time. I hope he survived the war because he was, he was a lighthearted kind of guy. <laughs> so now it's it's virtually last light. Yeah, and it's time to put out the claymores. They have to be actually on the road. Sure. To work, but not too far because you don't want the truck tire to knock them over. Right. So it's one of those things I didn't want to delegate because it's so damn dangerous to do, actually stepping out on the road, and it's still light enough to see a little bit. Yeah, we have men who were killed when he got on the road. Absolutely, because yeah. there are bad guys everywhere sitting around just watching the road. And uh, anyway, so I got out there. I placed three claymores um, linked with debt cord. How far apart? couple feet all all three of them were no farther than oh one 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 yeah okay and they're focused i picked out a tree you have to think it, we really planned this sucker i mean we sat around in the club brainstorming on how to do this what's well, going to be night how do you aim those claymores at a, a truck tire that's in moving. the dark it's moving yeah best way to do it was to pick out a tree on the other side and when the tire came in line with that tree, which is what the claymores are aimed at, boom, set it off. So got that set up. I went down. We brought up two more guys for the assault team. The guys are actually going to go out the road and take the prisoner and secure and right. and execute. 
And the other four, four guys on the right, four guys on the left, were security to block anybody who tried initially to And they had claymores out. They had claymores out. They had... Uh, One for rear security for good luck. Oh, they had multiple claymores. <laughs> and they also had time delay claymores. So that oh, as, as yes. they withdrew, as part of their withdrawal, they pulled the pins yeah. to start time fuse burning. And then there was a non-electric cap. You know, there are two cap wells on a claymore, right, right and left. One cap well had a non-electric cap and time fuse and a fuse lighter. Right. And the other side had a conventional clacker clacker and fire so that if enemy came boom they could detonate it but if they were withdrawing before the enemy just comes pop the pin and i think it was like a minute and a half and then one of the one of the two or three claymores they had would go off all this was timed which sure very lot of a lot of cocktail Part napkins of week training yeah a lot of cocktail <laughs> napkins went into this plan <laughs> but uh, but anyways so uh and now i had the assault team up Two American and two Indige down there. Two Americans and two Indige down here. One of the Indige has an M79 grenade launcher. And when they're ordered to withdraw, remember by then we've already detonated the claymores and right, snatched right. the guy. But when they're ordered to withdraw, that Indige fires his HE and immediately he's got right here on his chest gear two long CS cartridges. I don't know. They had the little ones. Right. And they have, these are 40 millimeter and they fire them through the 40 millimeter grenade launcher. Yeah. Which is, well, that's another story, but <laughs> I don't want to get diverted. <laughs> anyway, so they were then trained that after firing that HE, they would then fire two CS, long CS, as far as they could down the road in that direction, as far as they could down the road right. in that direction. So it's all about keeping them back while we finish our dirty work in the center yeah well anyways that truck's coming and coming and coming boom i detonate the claymores yeah because i i can tell it lined up mind you those claymores by the book it says they're supposed to be 50 feet away any closer it's danger close right honest but. to god these were 15 feet away <laughs> but we were a little downhill and i put them on the other side of a tree to, to absorb the backblast. And other than ringing our bells and flashing like crazy in the dark, and and therefore I can no longer see with my right eye because right. I'm slow at closing them. Oh, no. I have to shoot left-handed if it's necessary to shoot, or shoot left-eyed if necessary to shoot. But anyways, as quick as those detonated, I, I called, shouted, assault. And all four of us guys ran, ran out on the road uh, Richard Woody was in the end, covering right. the back. I was going after the assistant driver. John Yancey was going after the driver because John was, you know, a hefty, strong sure. guy. We wanted someone <clears throat> that physically, he wasn't going to fight him. He was going to push him down <laughs> and hog time. And meanwhile, Fred Krupa was going to be backing up John at, at the driver in case... He needed to help or he needed to shoot some bad guy inside the truck. And we had practiced that if anybody fired from inside the truck, we'd all drop to our knees and shoot upward. Right. That's the only practical way because otherwise we're shooting. It's, yeah, yeah. It's called frat, <laughs> fratricide. Oh. But, uh, and hope for the best because a ricocheting route still could have gotten us. But nevertheless, 
there was no assistant driver. My job was to run around and, if, if necessary, kill the assistant driver. Right. You know, the trucks halted. It, jer- it jerked to a stop, like, within a meter of where it was hit with the Claymore. Yeah, yeah. And uh, John's up there, whips that door open. Meanwhile, he had a pair of bolt cutters over his shoulder. Big bolt cutters. Oh, because the guys would chain themselves? So, because sometimes the drivers would be chained to the wheels. North Vietnamese sometimes did that. So the drivers would not abandon their trucks at an airstrike. So the Communist Party would be willing to sacrifice their people. Of course they would. Yeah. It's, oh I mean, God. it's not even, Why do you ask the question? Yeah. <laughs> well, course. a lot of our listening audience is not aware of uh, the cruelty to their own people from the communists and socialists. Uh, there's a great story from the siege of Den Ben Phu. Uh-huh. I've ever read Hell in a Very Small Place, a book by um, the, the French writer, in which the French... Bernard sur- Fall. Bernard Fall, right. Yeah. But uh, where the French have just surrendered and they're, the prisoners are being led out. And uh, there's a, a badly wounded Viet Minh laying there in an area where there's a minefield and the other troops the Viet Minh are stepping on him to get through the minefield and one of the French officers said you should get that guy out of there and treat him he said no he's already made his contribution to the party oh wow oh my god that's one heck of a contribution yeah so meanwhile back at the ranch back at the ranch back at the ranch John has uh, Turns out these guys not chained, so John happily throws away when we're done. Yeah, as quickly as he can. His, his these heavy bolt cutters he's been carrying. <laughs> he has a Browning high power cocked and ready to go in his right hand. Left hand he reaches in, he jerks that guy out. It's like a wet dishcloth. Whoop, boom, and he's <laughs> down on the road. And uh, then Fred Krupa, who had been his his direct support right there, yeah, uh, fashions some. Uh, uh, plastic handcuffs right. around the guy and they're ready to go so uh, i go back I, I join them make sure they're ready to go and i tell them get out of here and i go near woody i step near woody who had been covering the back of the truck about that far away from woody yeah yeah and i yell which is how we trained withdraw withdraw top of my lungs yeah, but then Woody to reinforce it as we had trained, because you know who knows I might have been wounded or something. Right, he'd blow twice on the whistle. Sure. So I mean, we tried to cover every contingency. Yeah. So Woody blows twice, and when he blows a second time, boom, boom, he was shot twice that close, right there. No. Took an AK round through his left forearm and his right forearm, <laughs> and it broke the bones, and he was oh my God. he was. Badly hit, very yeah. badly hit. Well, now we've got a seriously wounded guy. John is leading, John Yancey's and Fred are leading the prisoner back to the rally point. Well, I'm there now with Rex Jaco, who had the security yeah. on, on the left flank. And I mean, the NVA are out there now. We're, we're about to be engaged. Well, what the hell do you do? Yeah, three I, claymores in the middle of the night gets people's attention. Well, they, they tend to sit up and listen. <laughs> and and there were NV. I mean, there's security forces all over the place along yeah. the highway. So I took one of uh, of Woody's arms 
I'd open up a couple buttons on his jungle shirt, shoved it in that way. And wow. then shoved it in this way. I mean, this is something I was never learning in school. It was yeah. like, think of something to do quick. Uh, and then I buttoned it over it so that his arms would be held up. Yeah. And then Rex led his him back into arms. the jungle. Broken arms. <sighs> so Rex led him back. And they needed some time. I mean, we got a prisoner and we got a seriously wounded American. They needed to buy some time. So I stayed at the truck shooting it out with the NBA. I, I didn't have to shoot a lot, but yeah, but somebody was out there close because they'd shot Woody yeah. twice. And uh, anyway, so I'm shooting with accurate I, fire, yeah, very accurate, um, very accurate. I'm sure they were intended to shoot center mass, but they ended up getting both arms. And um, anyway, there's a little bit of fire. Um, we had also devised these charges to delay the NBA if they wanted to pursue us. Each man had about five of these in a Claymore bag where you take a fragmentation grenade, right. remove the, the handle and, and the explosive, the yeah. or excuse me, the... the uh, it's the handle and the charge inside. The handle, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the firing cap. Yeah, there you go. And then put a non-electric cap in and cut to a precise length that like not dead cord uh um fuse time fuse yes, time yeah. fuse old age sitting in time <laughs> fuse it's only 50 years ago that's all time fuse and then a fuse later and then wrap it around like a mummy and cover it with black tape so that let's say it's got five minutes of time fuse on it you pop it and as they're withdrawing, there wasn't anything fancy. Each guy was just supposed to randomly throw one this way, take a few steps and throw one that way. And it was a combination of white phosphorus grenades, high explosive HE frag right. grenades, and CS grenades, tear gas. Oh, CS too. Oh, yes. Which I invented oh. a way to set them off with time fuse, but that's a yeah, long yeah. technical thing. <laughs> anyway, so each of the guys had a combination of these in that Claymore bag. The idea was to set up a sort of self-detonating minefield behind us that as the NVA went into the jungle after us, these things would randomly seemingly go off and they would assume that someone had thrown a grenade at them. They'd be choking from the tear gas. The, the WP going off would blind them right. from the flash, etc. Hopefully these, burn a couple. Uh <laughs> I, I like to kill them gently. <laughs> anyway, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, I believe in fighting fair. But anyways, so uh, these were timed so that as they were withdrawing and throwing out, even the way they were stacked in the bags, yeah, was such that the shortest fuse ones, which were close to the road, would be grabbed first until finally at the very bottom of the bag, the last one was like, I don't know, the longest one was like nine, ten minutes. Right. Which, when you put enough that time fuse around, oh it, yeah, and you got a, you got tape around this thing around the grade grenade that big. So anyway, these guys are pulling back, and I'm having a difference of opinion with the NBA. <laughs> uh, somebody, one of the bad guys, threw a grenade, and I'm damn fortunate because had it been one of ours, forget it, I would have been dead on the spot. No but kidding. it was one of the Chinese ones, those were, which were notorious. They were like the World War II pineapples. Right. And they would they were erratic. They'd break apart this way, break apart that way. Well, I only picked up a, one small piece of shrapnel. 
Whoa. Although it knocked me, the blast knocked me to the ground. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. But I got up, fired a little more. Yeah. And I'd already placed a thermite grenade on the hood of the truck. Thermite burns at 2,000 degrees. It's a destruction device. It will burn right through that hood and into <laughs> the engine block. So they're not going to use that truck again. And secondly, I, I'd also... And for good luck. And for good luck. <laughs> for good luck, I also had a uh, satchel charge with a couple of blocks of C4. So it was probably like four pounds of C4, maybe. Right. And it had like five-minute time delay on it. So once I popped those, yeah, I, I better get away and get it's away quick. Roll, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I'm now back in the jungle headed for the... Uh, rally point where everyone already is and now some nva reached the truck and they're on the other side of it and they're just free shooting they're just hoping to hit something into the jungle right i think they're probably a little fearful of coming into the dark after us understandably but uh, that fire continues for about a minute then boom <laughs> that satchel charge goes off the firing ends <laughs> for now yeah. And meanwhile, remember, the rest of the convoy has halted. They're backed up Yeah, from 100 meters on down. And now we're taken off to the jungle, not real fast because of Woody. Sure. In fact, Woody, we, we were going to give him... Uh, morphine? Morphine. A, a half serrata morphine. Right. But he thought it would slow us down. He refused morphine. And can you imagine no. the pain he was going through? Two broken arms From AK and rounds. gunshot wounds. <sighs> Great man. Wow. Oh, my God. Anyways, but it, even without the morphine, you can't run. And no. it's dark, and you're feeling your way through and trying to stay on compass uh, in a certain direction. <clears throat> well, the plan that we'd had approved at Saigon was that once we withdrew, a C-130, which a C-130 gunship, a Spectre, Spectre with 20 millimeter Vulcan and and mini guns and 40. They had 40s in them. By 40s by that point, but not 105. No 105s yet. yet. Okay. But anyways, they had tremendous, and flares if you needed them. Right, but they had tremendous firepower. Oh yeah. And and that truck's now burning. What could be better? Well, he was supposed to, not he, but the AC-130 was supposed to be about 20 miles away to the north, flying in orbit, waiting for our, our ambush. And once we withdrew, he was supposed to go up and down the road to shooting anything that moved or yeah. even anticipating movement. That had been approved at highest channels. I called up a radio relay site on, on a mountain. Leghorn? Mouse, Leghorn. Yeah. We were within uh, line of sight of Leghorn, which was rare. Really, really big. Very yeah. rare. One of, those, one of those times at night, we actually <laughs> could get somebody on the other end. Most of the time, we just shut our radio off because nobody sure. would answer anyhow. But anyways, they didn't know anything about it. So back at Contum, they learn that we have conducted the ambush, and we have the prisoner, and we're running for our lives. We had a new commander that had just taken over that day from Colonel App. I oh. wanted so much to bring that prisoner back and hand him to Colonel App. Yeah, yeah. But we had a new guy, and he was a questionable judgment. 
Well, he was not. He was no Colonel Ab. Oh, no, no, no. But I'm just tactical judgment. I'm just. He didn't belong where he was. Right. Not his fault. Yeah. But somebody else did not have the guts to some of a higher rank. Look him in the eye and say, okay, you're, you're going to serve in the 77th Mess Kit Repair Company. Yeah. <laughs> Instead, he ended up Max Sog. But he learns about it. And he's new. He doesn't know up from down. He doesn't really read into Sog other than maybe a briefing. And it's perfectly fine to him to wait till the next morning to send out an aircraft and see how we're doing. What? We are running through the dark. Well, we're not running. Yeah. We're moving through the dark. We have just kicked the crap out of the NVA. And they are very angry because not only did we kill some of them, but we have one of their guys. And they know it. And they know it. So thank God for Lloyd O'Daniels. He heard that shit. And he said, this is bullshit. Total bullshit. And, and Louis he, was where at the time? At, at the FOB, back at Contum. Yeah. And he had been a cubby rider. So Lloyd raised enough hell that finally they got a Huey to fly him up to play coup, put him in a FAC aircraft. They came, flew out at night. They didn't get over us until almost midnight. But, Whoa. but by then there were two trucks burning. Really? Oh, yeah. And from 10 miles away, he could see the flames. <laughs> so he'd already ordered yeah. air, air before he got out there, his pilot did. So they spent a couple hours strafing and bombing that road. They got more trucks yet. Wow. And uh, it just pre so preoccupied the enemy at that point yeah. that I think that that became their priority to get the hell out of the airstrikes. Yeah, let's survive tonight. Yeah, I mean, talk about a perfect night beacon for calling air <laughs> so anyways now it's dawn the next morning i mean crack of dawn yeah and this was the only time i had this happen that typically our our hueys and uh, cobra gunships would arrive at contum about 0, 0700 get a quick brief and then fly up to dock toe well they took off in darkness they flew to dock toe and refueled right at the crack of dawn wow so they were out there like zero seven hundred which was only time i ever knew that to happen and uh cubby put in a little bit of air around us but then here came an a1 with cbu this was going to be the final pass right we look up and it's the only time i ever really appreciated how much cbu was coming because i looked up at there's all these twinkling things. Oh, yeah. And it's all, the sun reflecting off all these spinning balls. They're about the size of a baseball. Yeah. About the size of a softball. They're all coming down. I'm going, oh, shit, that's coming down on us. <sighs> and we all press our bodies. No. To the ground. And there is a God. He shined on me again that day because not, a, not I can't believe it. Not a one of us was hit. Really? And it, we had explosions there we had explosions there we had explosions there. everywhere had but explosions. on your ass none of us got hit oh my god but we were all flat yeah yeah now the Hue, the lead huey came in got the prisoner and yancey and a couple guys out and then a second huey and by god we we're on our way back and what was fantastic we got back to the helipad at contum at fob2 yeah and the whole compound was out there. With cold beer. 
Oh, yeah, with cold <laughs> beer. But they, they did that for every mission you came back. Well, of course. Yeah, I'm sure they did that for you guys, too. Yeah, usually. Okay. But I mean, the whole compound. Everybody wow. is out there. And it was such an atmosphere. It was just fantastic. And here's this poor NBA. At one point, he tried to wrestle out of his restraints. Yeah, yeah. And somebody I know had to punch him. <laughs> so he also had a bloody nose. And, his gut, and he got all this blood on him and stuff. Yeah. The guy was playing games. There was no time to play games. No, no. So... Uh, Welcome anyway, to, so they yeah. led him off to, to to get him ready to go because Sog had already uh, diverted a, one of their C-130 Blackbirds right. to Contum, and it was going to be there in 30 minutes. So uh prisoner was going to be taken immediately for op-immediate intelligence because I'm there. they had aircraft ready to go depending on what this guy had to say. Sure. And I was told that I would also go along with him. Fine with me. <laughs> so I still had on the same fatigues, smeared camouflage paint, couple days growth of beard, and I had a pistol. A little blood from Woody. Yeah, probably. Yeah. But anyways, I also had a forty-five automatic. So we get down to the airfield. I don't know if I should tell this story. <laughs> We get down to the airfield. Yeah, I'm okay. We get down (laughs) to the airfield, and we have this intel officer, a captain with us, Mm -hmm. and he's a soft guy. Not very hardcore. And to be nice, he lets the guys, all this time he's he's been blindfolded. He lets the guys blindfold down because he thinks that's a humane thing Uh. to do. And uh, this guy's can't believe all this stuff. He's been living in the jungle on yeah. two squares a day. A square is a handful of rice. If you're lucky. Yeah. If you're lucky. And he looks around at all this stuff, and I can tell you, he's a little bit of shock. And then he said, Didao, Didao. In Vietnamese, that means I got to take a leak. And he and he's kind of pushing, because where's the restraints in the front? I think those restraints were in the front. No, they were in the back. They had to be in the back. Yeah. So uh, so he's kind of ho- pushing them out like he thinks we're going to take the restraints off. Does that look like I'm that stupid? <laughs> the guy is ready. He's going to make a run for it. He's going to c- grab somebody, try to do what, whatever he's going to do. But he's faced that point of die or, or I'm going to be taken someplace in an airplane now. Yeah. So the guy clearly had to take a leak. So I walked over. I undid his fly. I pulled out his prick. Yeah. And I told him, dee-dow, dee-dow. And he did. He took his leak. <laughs> and then I politely put it back in, buttoned him back up. I was not going to risk anything like that happening. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, if we had to kill him there at the airfield because he's trying to grab somebody, a grenade yeah. or a gun or something, we've achieved nothing. Yeah. Other than blowing up some trucks, which isn't bad either. <laughs> So, so so anyways, <clears throat> what's kind of cool is we then were heading down. We're on the board the C-130 flying down. And they sent another guy along, same Burkhart Burkus, as a guard for the prisoner. But I'm there too, and I have my 45. But I have it out. I just have it laying on my lap, and I just keep giving him the "Don't forget who I am" look, and he can't look at me every once in a while he looks my way it's what i'm really telling him is don't try anything funny 
Yeah. Remember, I'm the guy that had you by the dick. <laughs> and I've got a 45 automatic, <laughs> and I will shoot you if I have to. But I don't want to. I oh want you to get God. down there alive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so by God, we landed down in Saigon. And I don't know why, but the Blackbird landed in front of the Tonsonut Civilian Terminal. No. Yes. <sighs> Who am I to say? They took, got us to Saigon. But there were places you could park on that airfield where you could do all kinds of secret stuff and nobody would see it. But right. lo and behold, we're, I don't know, 60 yards from the terminal. Now, it's not like they're a bunch of civilians. It's mostly soldiers. Yeah, yeah. Marines, Air Force, <clears throat> whatever. And I get out of the back of the 130. If you put the ramp down, we walk down the ramp. And just to keep the right perspective on this guy... I pulled out my 45 and I have them by the restraints and I'm walking them because I'm looking for the SOG van that's supposed to be there to pick us up and walking around and all these legs, all these, you know, non-SF, non-airborne rear echelon types, they get a good look at me. They don't want to find out. They don't want to find out. They're not that curious. (laughs) So about five minutes later, van showed up, picked us up and took us to SOG headquarters. Wow. What a mission. That was, that was, without question, the best mission I ever ran. No kidding. That's a classic. It's, well, so that was your second tour? Yes. So for an entire year, you ran recon for a second tour, or do you begin flying Covey at some point during your second tour of duty? I, I fly the last year I'm there. Okay. I spend two years running recon. The proud thing, I, I don't like, people shouting crap but the thing that i'm proud of is i never punked out yeah i never on the ground thought of myself you know if you're a team leader you're thinking of your team and there are times when everything that that nature's telling you to do is run get the hell out of here yeah but i never succumbed to that yeah which it's a i guess it's a kind of i don't know hysteria but I always stood my ground with my team, and I did not put myself out of out of risk if the team was in risk. Indeed, and that's that was hard to do sometimes. Absolutely, and that's we're talking twenty two missions across defense. I do that. Wow. So okay, let's end the second tour. Okay, you go I, back, I, and I, then you come back for a third tour of duty, and somehow you get back to Contum again. What What happened is. <laughs> I, I had an extension leave. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Came home, and I'd already been assigned. Had I? Yeah, I'd come back from an extension leave. And now I, I have RT Hawaii again. Uh, now, here's team number five, RT right. Hawaii, and I'm the one zero. And we run a mission on the Laotian border where the mission was to... Uh, confirm that a particular trail, a large trail but not a road, was being used by the NBA. And of all things, supposedly they were using elephants because it was kind of up in the mountains. Sure. And uh, I then hand-built a an elephant mine. <laughs> I liked experimenting with them. I made a lot of crazy stuff. Some worked, some was just uh-huh. never off the drawing board. Indeed. But anyways, I took a beer can, packed it with uh, C4, 
And then on the top, I put a toe popper mine. So you could say it's a reinforced M17 toe popper. Right. <laughs> and uh, when we got to that trail, wait, that was the, anyway, this was an R2 Hawaii mission. I got out my banana knife, dug real carefully. There's a technique to placing a mine. Oh, of course. I put my hat down there, scraped the trout. The trout's pretty hard. Pack. Okay. I wanted that light colored dirt on the top separate. Right. So I put that there and then I dug with my knife to loosen and scooped it out and put it in my hat, which right. I would then dump in the jungle. Got the mine in, armed it, praying to God it didn't go off. <laughs> and uh, and then I put on just enough of that raw dirt, the dark dirt, yeah, to pretty well cover it. And then I smoothed back. I was very careful. That's a skill set. Because <laughs> that's that is oh, yeah. that is an armed mine. <laughs> yeah. I, I spread it back so that it was perfectly smooth and like anywhere else along that trail. That night we were up on a hillside maybe a kilometer away. And I think we were sitting around eating chow before dark. And boom. <laughs> you know? Initially, you're thinking about chuckling or something, but I, somebody's really screwed up now. Might have been an indige, or not an indige. Might have yeah. been a, a human being right. the NBA. Might have been an elephant. I didn't hear, you know, an yeah. elephant trunk sounding off. But there was one more mission after that with RT, and that was my last, what's coming up is my last mission. <laughs> Going in on an LZ right adjacent to the Laotian border, Northwest, almost due west of Doc Siang Special Forces Camp. Right. And uh, we were supposed to, we had this big grassy area kind of on the side of a hill. We supposed to land in that grassy area. And Chopper got in as low as the, the pilot was a new guy. I didn't realize it. Oh, yeah. And he put in close enough that the skids were about as high as the ceiling here, maybe more. Yeah. And I was, you, everybody stays on the helicopter until the team leader, or unless the team leader exits. Particularly in elephant grass. Particularly in elephant grass. So I looked at it, and it's a slope. So even though it's this high on this side, I know it's going to be farther on that side. And sure as hell, if we, if we jumped out, somebody was going to break an ankle or something. So I signaled to the uh, other side to, to, you know, there's a strap that you can pull and then unroll the... Uh, the ladder? The, the ladder, the yeah. aluminum ladder. And I signaled to the other side, so we both dumped the aluminum ladders, and that pilot, instead of staying at that level, which for him it was probably scary, was probably considered dangerous to be that low on a slope, he extended it so that he, he lifted uh, up, so it's now the whole 28 feet of the ladder. I'm carrying the radio, as I always did on insert and extract, so that I didn't have to go through somebody else to tell right. the air what I needed. <clears throat> so I've got the radio in the rucksack, and I turn around, well, we're going to go in, like it or not. And that ladder, we'd flown through a rainstorm on the way out there, so that my... In my boots, I've been hanging my feet out the window or out the door. 
and the skids were wet. So I got one foot on a rung and pivoted around to get the other foot. And as quick as I did, I mistakenly was stepping on the first rung below the skid. Ooh. Once you put your weight on it, it goes whoop, like that, right? Yeah, on, it goes under the skid. Yeah. Under the skid. Boom! I'm, I'm free falling. Oh, my God. And I, I hit with my, with my back, with a rucksack, hyperextended my spine, hit so hard that I did not know where I was. I had amnesia. Oh, my God. Honest to God, I had to be medevaced out of there. And the elephant grass didn't help the fall any. Well, this time it was, there were some stumps in the oh. area from old an old slash bird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I missed a stump like that by about two feet. If I'd have hit that, I'd have been dead. Oh, yeah, you're a goner. But as it is, my whole life I've used firearms. Yeah. Yeah, I, I remember I read uh, Small Arms of the World as a kid. <laughs> right. <laughs> Guess who was so out of it? I don't know I'm a team leader. I don't know where I am. I don't know my name. I left my car 15 laying there. Ooh. And got over to the, you know, the brush, into the jungle on yeah, the yeah. side. And uh, my assistant team leader, uh, um, 50 years, I had amnesia. <laughs> anyway, Lyle Dover. Lyle oh, Dover. yeah. Okay. Uh, he's talking to me. And... I, I mean, I don't know who he is. I don't know what we're doing there. And he gets cubby. He takes a radio away from me. Yeah. And he gets cubby, and they come in. They pick up all of us. I get back to uh, Doc Toe, and I get off the aircraft, and there are people that I know there, and I know I know them. And I look at him and say, why, you're... And it doesn't fall. Doesn't click. I tried to say my social security number. 47... I had amnesia. I had to be hospitalized. Oh my God. In play coup. And it took me about three days. Third day, I could, uh, it was coming back. Things were still a little shady. But when I got back to Contum, that sorry SOB we had for an S3 told me that if I wasn't going to take the team back out, he was going to turn it over to Dover. It was my mission. I was assigned that mission. I was not going to let someone else be running it. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, it's not an ego thing. It's a responsibility. That's sure. my team. I had that mission. I'm not going to punk out and let somebody else do it. So even though, I mean, my back had, excuse me, been spasming. I had a concussion. I had bruises across the center of my back. My spine hurt. Next day I got on a ruck, got on a ship. No. We flew out and did it. Yep. <laughs> and that wasn't very smart, but by God, I didn't quit. <laughs> and after that, after that, yeah, I think some of the powers that you'd be, Bob Howard was one, because he'd come back. He'd, yeah, know, he was about to. He had received. I think he had received his medal by then. Yeah, and he wanted to go to the field. They said Ixnay. Oh no, no, no! Yeah. You're not going to the field. He was a captain, though. Ooh. So uh, anyway, so Bob Howard came in and talked to me a little bit, and they had a meeting talking about me. And lo and behold, I was invited to be a cubby rider. I said, you've got all this time on the ground. You ran all these missions. The best place for you to be now, you scrambled brain idiot, <laughs> is to fly cubby so that you can help the guys on the ground. Yeah. 
And that's when I became a Cubby writer. Shortly, it was November of... 70? 1970, which is one month short of having had two full years in recon. Wow. So I flew the whole the next second tour. Year. Yep. That was my third tour. And just for our listeners again, the Covey Rider, in your case, what your job would be, you're the guy that relates to the troops on the ground, the Air Force pilot. By then, are you in OV-10s? Or you still for some missions, O2s? well, we got both O-2s and OV-10s. Okay. Uh, the OV, OV-10 aircraft is fabulous because unlike the O-2, which is unarmed other than marking rockets, right. the OV-10 has four M-60 machine guns. Four? Four. Two on each yeah, yeah. pylons, two on each side. And I think it was uh, 2,000 rounds of ammo. Wow. That's yeah, not a lot, but it's better than not having Yeah, it. better than O-2 that just gives and you a couple it had, markers. It had two um, rocket pods under each wing. Two of those were marking rockets, but two of them were high explosive, so that he could be firing 2.75 inch HE right. in support of a team. It wasn't enough to win a battle, but it was enough to buy time. That meanwhile, the pilot's talking to get fighters out there. To get TAC air for yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of guys, a lot of lives saved that way. Right. And so during your, this tenure, how many missions did you fly as a Covey rider then? I have had times after I came back from Vietnam, I would mention it, and pilots who flew over there would look and say, got a liar here. Yeah, yeah. Because they were limited amount of time they could fly, crew time. You know, they had to rest after sure. so many hours. It was actually regulation, so they didn't fall asleep and destroy Uncle Sam's airplanes. We but for cubby riders. were not air crew. Yeah. So there was no limit on the number of missions that we flew or the number of hours. I flew just short of 400 oh. missions. But some of that was the Huey missions. I've sure. already flown before that. You know, yeah, yeah. Combat assaults. And uh, 1,550 hours. Wow. Which there are a lot of pilots that didn't didn't do the half of that. Sure. Which no insult whatsoever. No, it's no. just, you know, we had no limits. So during that tour of duty as a cubby rider, there's one mission in particular that was um, with RT Colorado. Yes. And that's a mission that, uh, that was a classic example of where a cubby rider comes in, the team on the ground, the radio operator is, they're under fire and the enemy's coming in on them. Right. They need close air support and... The operators, radio operators, a little bit uptight, and you came in. The first thing you had to do was to calm him down, right? And then get on with the mission. And well, this it was even a little more complicated than that. Okay, because um, that's that's your as your four hundred plus missions. This is the one that sticks in 400 your four hundred almost missions. It's okay. like three fifty plus. I I was inducted into the U.S. Air Force Air Command Hall of Fame, the only Army guy ever <laughs> to be inducted because <laughs> right. I had all those missions. And uh, I was uh, proposed by a couple of the Cubby pilots so that I'm the Air Command Hall of Fame. Wow. Uh, but anyways, I flew a hell of a lot of missions. But at that point, it was only, we could absolutely clearly document 350. <sighs> without getting into the Huey missions and so on and some of the late ones, so we said 350. Right. 
But anyway, so I, I was flying a lot and putting in airstrikes every damn day. God knows how many airstrikes we put in. <laughs> right. Because sometimes we'd be out there flying around, find a target. Boom, you call it an airstrike. And every time you inserted a team, you had tack air out there to support them. Team doesn't need it. You go bomb something. Every time you extract, <laughs> team's coming out. If they don't need the air that you've got stacked up, you still, yeah. you, you expend it. Well, anyways, I had been back. I had flown first light with an OV-10 out of Pleiku Air Force Base. And we flew back for lunch because you also have to refuel. Of course. Went back, refueled. In the meantime, there was an O-2 out there. And it was... Uh, I think it was Ken Carpenter was a cubby writer about board that O2. But we're flying back and we you know as the pilot's flying along he's changing the radio frequencies because he's had, has to be in contact with various locations en route. And finally we're getting uh, we're about 50 miles out he turns the frequency on FM to our tactical FM radio yeah. frequency. When he does, and he's got a whole host of radios. He's got a, 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 a FM, UHF, and VHF, and sometimes multiples of those. So you're hearing all kinds of chatter, but he turns that FM, and right away I can hear that Ken Carpenter is talking to the guys on the ground, and they've got a prairie fire emergency. That's a dire emergency where... You better get them all the air in the world now, or you're not going to get them out. And it's a really, you know, it's it's a last stand kind of situation. So he had not yet got the choppers out there, and we were approaching. We had an OV-10 that was the, the other aircraft O2 did not have armament, other than marking rockets. Right. Ours had four M60 machine guns and those high HE rockets. So when we're about five, 10, five, 10 miles out, he turned the ball game over to me. That's that's what we referred to all the various things, orchestrations you have to do when extracting a team. Sure. Because you have fighters up here. Those are fast movers. Well, it could be A1s. A1 sky I would rather have A1s because oh, sure. they're slower and they carry a lot more ordnance. And it's better ordnance for close air support. They have napalm. Multiple CBUs. twenty millimeter, yes, multiple twenty millimeter cannons, and see uh, cluster bombs. But it's the kind, right kind of cluster bomb. It drops in a uh, in a stream rather than this huge area, which you can't bring that stuff. The, the CBU twenty five, you couldn't bring it that close right. to a team. So, anyways, um, we had fighters up here, at probably about seven thousand feet, A ones down lower but still in orbit out here we had hueys that had just got there and the cobras are down low shooting for the team and also ready to counter enemy enemy ground fire regis committer is on the on the radio and in the excitement of them taking fire the helicopters taking fire the nvr right out there he is shouting into the radio he isn't even thinking about how, how loud that really yeah. is. <laughs> but he's excited, understandably so. Someone is trying to kill him and his team. And I first calmed him down. As that was oh, the yeah. man I calmed down. We just committed. 
and the choppers were ready to come in. Just as they're ready to come in, I can hear, barely hear a voice, a whispering voice saying, prairie fire, prairie fire, prairie fire. It's not Regis Gewinner. The nearest team we have in that AO about 10, 12 miles away is Recon Team Colorado. And I recognize the team leader's voice. It's uh, uh, Pat Mitchell. Pat Mitchell. Right. And uh, I, I tell him, negative, negative. He's, we need help now. I said, negative, negative. I've got a prairie fire. I've got to get this first, and then I'll be right over there. So I'm trying now talking to the helicopters and so on, getting everything lined up. They're, they'd taken ground fire the first time they went in, then the Cobras went down there. Well, we've got an armed aircraft. So I called Cobra Lead, and I said, listen, how about if you take over this ball game and we will head, head over to this other team? We've got another prairie fire going. And he said, very understandably, negative, negative, because if you go, we cannot get TAC air. Oh. The A1s, the, the radio nets, and procedures and so on are such that he can't call in air. So we have to stay there. And I'm going, oh God. And there's Pat Mitchell again. Prairie fire, prairie, prairie fire, fire, prairie fire. And I can hear some gunfire. Oh God. And I have to come back on there and I'd say, I forget the call sign. But I tell him, evade, evade. We will come there ASAP, but I've got a prairie fire over here. Oh. What else can you say? Yeah, it's the truth of the matter. That's the truth of the matter. And, you know, you had to make some hard decisions there. You know, you're going to, and this was my own team. This recon team, Hawaii, just after yeah. the, the uh, when I had the fall from the helicopter. So the Hueys come back, and I can see the first one made it in without ground fire. And as quick as the guys, it was going to be a two-ship extraction. Right. As soon as that first one lifted away and the second one was coming in, I said, let's go. So we flew down. I told the pilot, let's go. So And the A1s had been expended by then in support no against kidding. ground fire. Yeah. yeah. So we don't have any tack air at that moment. And we head down. It takes maybe five minutes of flying to get there. And I'm telling Pat, hold on, hold on. We're on the way. Oh, my and God. And he's there, prairie fire, prairie fire. I said, where are they? They're all around us, all around us. And um, he already had one American dead. David Mixter. David Mixter. Who and died saving? Saving St. Laurent. His life. Yep, saving yeah. his life. He took the blast. He had just, he was carrying a sawed-off RPD right. machine gun, a Chinese machine gun. And there was an NVA about to shoot uh, St. Laurent, he stood up and got the NVA, but when he did, he exposed himself to an RPG gunner who oh. fired him, and it hit the ground at, like, uh, at his feet. He was dead right away. It was terrible. To which Pat Mitchell was an SF medic, and he absolutely was doing everything he could, but he was dead. Gone. Gone. And meanwhile, he's patching up uh, St. Laurent, and he still has the indige there. Well, the indige run off and leave him because they think the team's about to be overrun. Right. So as Martin here, it's oh. take off. So it's just Pat and St. Laurent. And we the nicknamed body. him, or his call sign was Lurch. Right. For Dave Mixter. Because he's, he's so a big. big, huge guy. Yeah. yeah. 
Uh, but really good, good guy. Which that's that's the problem, really. If you start bringing guys on operations where they're really big, and there are normal sized people with them, what do you do if you got a badly wounded guy that's that big? What are the options? Anyways, there aren't many. Mixter was unfortunately, and God bless his soul. Yeah, he was dead. And he said after saving Saint Lawrence's life. Yep. And incidentally, this entire sequence was recorded. I don't know if you ever knew that. I did. Did you know that it's on YouTube? I didn't know it was on YouTube. Yeah. Not because of me. No. Somebody somewhere. Because it was the helicopter pilots, I think, that recorded it. But nevertheless. They did, yeah. I'm now overhead. And I t I, Pat's down there. And I tell him, uh, listen, give me a direction and a distance. We're ready to come in hot. And he says, can't do. We got in ditch out there. I don't know where they are. I said, Pat, and you can hear if ever you go to YouTube and hear it. <laughs> I said, partner, we got to worry about the living. The yards made their own decision. Now, where do you want the air? And at that point, he started calling the air around him. And I could see that the nearest LZ that we could get to, even with strings, was a couple hundred meters away. We had to get them over there. So we, we rocketed the area in between, and choppers were now on the way out. A1s had just about, and the, another pair of A1s were just about there. But, you know, time is life and death. Oh, sure. The North Vietnamese didn't take some dead just to say, oh, well, that's a bad day, yeah, Black yeah. Rock. They undoubtedly were sending more troops out there. And it, the ones who had been wounded in that exchange, whoever was with them, they were still out there. So we, Pat did not want to move. Pat did not want to. He could not bear leaving his good friend, David Mixter, lurch behind, even right. though he was dead. And I had to tell him, uh, you know, it's all well, but giving got, an order. In your book, yeah. that's right, you gave it, you said, uh, Mitchell realized that St. Laurent was badly hit and he need help to walk, but lurch was there too. Only a few yards away, David Mixter had died saving their lives. I'm with Lurch, Mitchell radioed. I can still see Lurch. I can't leave him. And then you shared your anguish. And you could hear it in Mitchell's voice. See, I had to stay idea. calm the whole time. Yeah. Uh, just that big voice in the sky. Literally. And that's and then you got your fatherly tone in place. You said you can't be worried about the dead right now. We've got to be concerned about the living. Now get moving. You gave them a direct order. Yep. And fortunately, they did. My yep. God. And you were able to get them out. Both of them alive. Wow. And St. Laurent survived. He was badly wounded. He took... Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah I talked to him a while ago, and he said it took him over a year to rehab, and he still has pain and suffering internal from that day. In Laos. We were lucky to get those guys out at all. Indeed. And that they held out like that while we were pulling Recon Team uh, Hawaii. I'm just and I kept hearing that he came he came up on the air a couple times. Prairie even fire, more than yeah, this voice whispering the NBA were so close. He had to be whispering, Prairie fire, prairie fire, prairie fire. It still gives me shivers. Absolutely. Just, yeah. 
Well, we're at that point where I'd like to talk a little bit about your life afterwards. Okay. Because um, you did have a total of eight books. Besides the SOG and the Secret Commandos, we have the history of sniping and sharpshooting. Sharpshooting in the Civil War. They had SOG, the Secret Wars of Americans Commandos, sniping in the trenches for World War One, and then the Ultimate Sniper, which we know some people that have turned to that book. And yes, this is a uh, weighty book that's <laughs> not available now, but will be coming back with a new edition soon. Yes, it should be coming out before the uh, end of the year. And uh, again, for anybody that knows anything or wants to know anything about snipers, we've had people that have gone through Army sniper training and said that book is better than a lot of the manuals. It's so well put together. Well, I had instructed sniping for by the time I wrote this for 10, 15, oh, 10 years. So how did you get involved in sniping, first of all, after a career running recon? <sighs> and then at some point, we got to mention the fact that you worked with the legend, all-time sniper legend from Vietnam, Carlos Hathcock. Yeah, but I, that's I a very loose term, work. I knew him. Okay. But I was at knew- his house. I uh, <laughs> helped tell his story. Yeah. Um, if you ever go online and see Carlos being interviewed, it was the only interview he ever did because he knew, unlike the idiots in the media, he wouldn't be asked, how does it feel to kill a man? Yeah. How many kills? What's your life? You know, that trivial stuff that real people don't want to hear. No. But my voice is there. I'm, I'm the guy asking the questions. It's the only interview we ever gave. No kidding. No kidding. Because he knew wow. I'd treat him square. Sure. But back in 83, I'd received a direct commission. I was by then a captain. And I was appointed the um, marksmanship, chief of marksmanship for Minnesota, which is a position in the reserve components that you were responsible for all the competition and marksman, advanced marksmanship training in a state. Each state has as one of these. <clears throat> I wanted to train people to do recon, but... And you love boy toys all your life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the, but there were there was no place to instruct recon. Nobody wanted to learn recon. And the, yeah. the big folks that run the Army didn't see the value. They, well, of course. It's all about tanks and nuclear weapons. Or big Army what. stuff. Big yeah. Army stuff. Yeah. Well, I had all that recon experience. Plus, I'd been a competitive... Uh, shooter and uh, I'd shot the uh, M14 and I was pretty good shot with bolt guns Uh, so I combined the two I had enough power at that time that I could actually talk (laughs) to some of the senior people yeah and I knew that every National Guard Army for an infantry unit had a handful of M1 Deltas 30 odd six with two and a half power scopes. And they were there for civil disturbances. Yeah. Really? Yeah, really. And they'd undoubtedly deploy with them to war. But the first thought was so you could fire to support troops during, that are taking fire during a riot or something. Right. But there was no training whatsoever anywhere in the system. In the entire state. No, I mean throughout the Army system. No. Throughout the Guard system. Throughout, The Army did not have a sniper school in 1983. That is when SODIC 
at Fort Bragg opened their course. Right, okay. Benning, I think it's 86 or 87 before they started their course. Yeah. So I managed to persuade a two-star general (laughs) that all we really needed was a weekend drill and one extra day to do a quick school. And we did it. We learned from it. You know, I, I had, I recruited instructors. I had marksmanship instructors and tactics instructors. And I, you know, I didn't, I had national level marksmanship instructors. I mean, President's 100, that's the 100 highest rifle shots in the country. Wow. They really knew their yeah, yeah. on, on <clears throat> long range rifle shooting. And on the other hand, I had some really experienced guys who had been instructors before that really knew infantry tactics. So I educated them on sniping. I looked everywhere to try to find a worthwhile manual, and I couldn't. So I started collecting handouts, anything under the sun. If you go back and look at TC-2214, I think it is. Okay. If you, that was a sniper training book back then. It's a cut and paste from most other manuals. About wow. tactics, about nine, yeah. about, there, there isn't a whole lot. They didn't even have a ballistic table for a 308 in there or 30 at six. Really? Yeah, you know, with drops sure. and muzzle velocity and so on. So I, I don't know that I was the first one to ever make data cards. But I made data cards, and I had never seen them before. It just made good sense. Not long thereafter, people started making them commercially because I think they bought my book and said, we should. hats off to them, hats off to yeah. them. Flattered it's the American by, way. It's the American way. The more people know the correct shit, the better we all are. So it was a successful school, and the second time around, we extended it a couple more days, and we opened it up to air guard and units in the Midwest and even a couple state state police agencies yeah, in Minnesota. Uh, this is up Camp Ripley, Minnesota. Could by now SWAT was beginning to emerge nationally. Seriously, yeah. Yes. And, that, and I'll tell you, there, there was I, no insult to police, but there were not that many cops that were heavy-duty veterans. Uh, the, they were good people, but right. they just didn't have that experience. And for instance, I won't name the department, but there are a number of departments that the snipers had two twenty-three bolt guns. The theory was that they should have a, a cartridge that matches that of the ARs that their entry teams had so they could exchange ammo. And they were shooting ball ammo, and I just they, they didn't know because they hadn't had enough experience. Right. And, and it was... Gunsight existed. They didn't have a precision rifle course at Gunsight at that point, I don't think. They this had, is the early days of Gunsight, which is still one of the premier, if not the right. premier weapons instruction site in the country. And I think Mid-South may have had precision rifle by then. That's a really good outfit. And there were yeah, some Yeah, this others. is out of my league. Yeah, but but nevertheless, there, sure. there were some, but very few. And the great thing was we finally got direct funding from National Guard Bureau in Washington. So through the war on drugs, so we could open it up to police across the country. Not only that, but do MTTs, 
mobile training teams where we we go into an area and a bunch of different agencies come together. Sure. To, and and their students, we didn't charge them a dime wow. for the instruction. And we structured it so that it could be during the work week, Monday through Friday, because department we learned about how a police department is going to say no if there's a Saturday because they don't want to pay the overtime. You know, sure. that's just the way it is. And we found that in most states, officers had a requirement for continuing education, so many hours per year. So I put together our, I'm talking to guys in the business, civilian police. I put together a package and got our curriculum approved at the state level in Minnesota for continuing educational law enforcement officers. I forget the number of hours they gave us. But therefore, it could meet the requirement for continuing educational law officers. And therefore, this, some of the departments would justify the additional expense of sending them, putting them up in a motel and feeding them and so on, because it's training. It is credited training. So eventually, we instructed officers from more than 100 departments. And we, uh, it was a really good deal. Wow. And we love doing it. Yeah. Um, then I butted heads with some senior officers and thus ended my military career. <laughs> but, but the sniper school did not end. The National Guard Bureau moved it to Arkansas. Yeah. Which uh, uh, we used to shoot national competition down there on the ranges at, at Camp Robinson. So... Uh, it is now at Camp Robinson. It's it's conducted. Was that in, that new National Guard Center, the really huge one? Right. But it's part of it. Yes. You want to hear a funny story? Just a quick sidebar. They're going to name that the John T. Walton training facility. Honest to God. They are or they were? They were. And they went to the family, and the family said, Ixnay. They don't want it associated with violence I or something? I don't know what the reason was. They didn't bother talking to me. John Walton uh, was a fellow SOG veteran. He unfortunately passed away in an airplane crash indeed but uh, he was a member of the walton family uh, ran from recon walmart up north and with you guys yep he ran recon and uh, he was awarded a silver star he was wounded he, at one point he called an airstrike on himself on his team because he needed that or they were going to be overrun but yeah. getting getting back to it, what what's yes. great today is that that school down in arkansas is taught in two week increments to fit annual training periods yeah. of soldiers. And I forget, it's like to go through two of those, in other words, four weeks, that school is the only school in the Army system that can avoid uh, uh, award the designator for an Army-qualified sniper, other than Fort Benning at the Army Sniper School. Wow, no kidding. That's, that's the way it is. Wow. And so that, you know, when you first started that, the Marine Corps had snipers, but the Army didn't? The Marine Corps sniper schools had gone belly up, too. Oh, is that right? It was Carlos Hathcock who sure. brought it back in 1976. Yeah. And his great advocate at uh, headquarters Marine Corps was Jim Land. Jim Land had, had instructed snipers way back in Vietnam as a captain. He was now a major. And he was the marksmanship chief for the whole Marine Corps. He was close enough to get some general's ears. 
<laughs> so he had a plan. He did this phase by phase. First, yeah. he got an authorization. I think it was for the rifles that they needed quality rifles. They could build them in-house, which they do. They have outstanding armors to hand-build sure. these babies. So you take out Remington 700s and build them. Then he managed to get a school. Initially, it was only at Quantico, a basic school. Then he managed to get MOSs. Unlike the Army, that's an additional skill identifier. Right. ASI. In the Marine Corps, it is an MOS, which means that is their assignment, period. And there are slots. He also got the slots in, in each regiment, Marine regiment, for snipers. Wow. Carlos did all of that, but it only started in 76. And it took him a couple years to persuade, to, to pester enough generals. <laughs> which, by the way, he after retirement, he was also the secretary full-time of the NRA. And I got to know him. He's a great guy. Oh, is that right? In fact, I dedicated... My book, Sniping in the Trenches, to right. Jim Land. Oh, wow. Well, look, we're at that point, sir. It's been a very quick three hours. And, wow. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I know. Time flies. And uh, so many stories. We could do a lot more. And we've only just touched the surface today with the Secret Commandos book. And, of course, there's SOG, which is the outstanding history. We didn't even open this today because there's so many stories here that your firsthand service to our country um any closing thoughts absolutely um i wrote this book to make sure that 25 years after the fact when it could finally be declassified that the story of sog was told accurately i did an incredible amount of research on it how many years three years just on that book wow and i wanted to make sure because there are a lot of guys that gave their lives there are a lot of guys that risked their lives and I wanted to make sure they were not forgotten. hundred years from now, people will know what SOG is, just like we can go back to the Civil War and Burdan's sharpshooters sure. or something. And I wrote uh, Secret Commandos because I, I wanted from my own perspective, not, hey, boy, am I tough, cool. No, that's silliness. I can't stand those. Yeah, but I you love mixed it with all the other guys' stories. It's, it's all the other guys' stories, too. And the men you served with. Yes. John which was, Allen, Bob Howard, my God. Oh, all of those guys. And... They needed, the Americans needed to know what they did. I am merely an ambassador for the rest of the guys at the SOG. Well, you're also, in my humble opinion, the godfather <laughs> of SOG nonfiction writers, in my humble opinion. And also, before we close, um, there was a 1998 a media outlet that just, disparaged uh, the Special Forces one mission. We won't even get into it to waste of time here. But from that, you worked very hard clarifying the record. And as a result of that uh, erroneous report, you worked behind the scenes for several years on an effort to get the Presidential Unit Citation, which was awarded to SOG April 1st, 2000. Right. And you were one of the key players that worked behind the scenes on that and uh, that was the first, other than the defamatory reporting from 1998, that was erroneous. And then the recovery, which there's minimal coverage of the corrections and the lawsuits thereafter. But the PUC was the first time that SOG was 
publicly recognized. Officially recognized. It really existed. And the PUC They really is, did a lot of top secret stuff across the border in Laos, Cambodia, and North Vietnam. And you helped to pen some of the paperwork there? I am, I was a glorified clerk, but I'm as persistent <laughs> as clerk. a junkyard dog having the bite around the leg of the Department of Defense. But we had wonderful support there. It's just that it was dealing with bureaucracy. Indeed. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs personally pushed on it. The Secretary of Defense did too. And at that Cohen, time it was Cohen. Defense, Cohen Sorry, yes. Secretary Cohen, yes. Right. So with that, as a result of that, your effort behind the scenes for several years. I made a hell of a good clerk. <laughs> a hell of a good clerk. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll close on that note, but we want to thank you because as a result of that, the Presidential Unicitation, which is the equivalent of a Distinguished Service Cross, which is the second highest medal of valor right. our country awards, and that was to SOG. Right. And uh, we salute you for that. So on that note, We'll close. We thank you for coming in today and then um, um, hope to see you another time. Maybe we'll come back and talk some more about sniping. But either way, thank you for your service, your years of dedication, getting out the SOG, the stories, and helping snipers and our SWAT teams be better SWATs. Thank you. Thank And thank you, John, for all you have done to oh. tell our story. Plus, is all mine. Airborne. Airborne. All right. John Plaster has left the studio. And today we're honored to have with us our new uh, temporary uh, technician, Chad. Uh, nice to meet you all. Indeed. Well, thank you for coming out to fill in today. Our normal top secret clandestine agent is uh, is working out of country. And uh, so, anyways, thanks for filling in. Of course, just for our listening audience, Chad spent a little bit of time in the 101st Airborne. He's an airborne troop. And uh, he also works with Tactical Rifleman. Yep. And uh, old Carl, old Carl Erickson, the sure. first. And last night we had episode number 98. Yes, that My was an goodness. amazing show. That was fun having you and John on there. Well, more importantly, today, now that you see, heard John's stories, so many, oh. as a fellow airborne paratrooper, what do you think? It's just amazing. Uh, it's, it's kind of funny how everything comes around kind of full, full circle in the end. <laughs> But many, many years ago, uh, as a younger soldier, yeah, uh, getting ready to get a team, you know, deploying to Afghanistan after being in Iraq, I was on orders for sniper school, and and I had been familiar with John Plaster then, sure, and had his book. Actually, the one you showed earlier, it's actually my book. Yeah, um, I've got the uh, Secret Commandos book that is signed by John Plaster. You know, and it's it's great to have read them stories back then and to have him telling stories now and, and remembering that first time I heard the story, it's like hearing it again and hearing it come out of his mouth is just amazing. And then, you know, listen to you tell stories and it's just, it's great to connect with that history. Oh yeah. You guys are just, your whole generation is amazing. Well, and then with, with John's stories, I, no, I just haven't had a chance to go back and look at the books. When he yeah. came out, I read him and go like, wow. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, then you that's come all back you can say today is, is, wow. Getting ready for the show again. Yeah. It's like, oh, my God. It's, it's he, amazing. He worked with so many men. And, like, again, with SOG in 68, there were six FOBs up and running missions. Yeah. And he was down at two. I was up at one. We never knew each other. Yeah. And but, then there were guys that were down south. Yeah. Again, but that dichotomy. And, and one thing was for sure, the missions across the fence, whether you were yeah. in Cambodia 
or the tri-border area, or, or the uh, southern Laotian, where the Kantum did everything there. Yeah. And then up just north. Amazing. Oh, just the stories. You, you guys, yeah. I know, just, I'm, I'm at a loss for words, really. Just to get to sit here in the studio and listen to that while recording it. Oh, yeah. Getting chills. He mentioned he was, when he was talking, he said, it's giving me chills talking about it. Yeah, you're not the only one. I'm getting chills listening. <laughs> well, also, one of the other things that I had forgotten about was that in the first book, we talked about, he, he not we, John yeah. wrote about the casualties. Yeah. And the total numbers of uh, people that were killed. And I think, well, I mismarked it. But like 199? 300. That, that one's low because some of the casualties are not attributed to some. Right. So anyways, and, you know, we always talk about how many actual yeah. Green Berets ran missions across the fence. Like, depends on who you talk to. 700, maybe 800. Yeah. Out of the 3.2 million Americans that served in the Vietnam War. And uh, so anyways, these are the Bible, the stories, and the men just reading about Bob Howard yeah. and having walked with these giants yeah. and his other Medal of Honor recipients, Fred Zabatowski, Franklin. Um, these men were all there. These are all a contum. Yeah, it, Carl on the show last night said, keep this in mind when you see that older gentleman, you know, walking along with his his uh, <laughs> his hat on, you know, and, yeah, yeah. and, and realize that, you're walking amongst giants, really, because these guys, the, everything in those two books is just amazing. Well, yeah, just and, and one of the stories we didn't get into today was how uh, at one point, I think John had gone flying Covey. Yeah. And he hears this beeper thing. Yeah. And Stormy 03, it turns out this Eldon Bargewell's team, yeah, who by that time was a staff sergeant, and he was in the middle of a huge firefight after being shot in the face yeah. by the NVA and uh, given his team cover fire when the team was extracted. But he was still down there with his yeah. his RPD. Yeah. Uh, just amazing. Was that story. the one where he said he was out flying? They were sightseeing in Covey? Yeah. Yeah, that one. Just checking the area Just out. checking the area Just out. another day in solid yeah. flying Covey. Yeah. That's awesome. Oh, yeah. So any other uh, side notes for your first impressions from seeing it firsthand? And, uh, well, I can tell you that uh, f my impression is that just like our show last night, which I kind of feel like uh, for people that don't know, he mentioned show number 98 live stream on YouTube for Tactical Rifleman. It's not a sales pitch or trying to get you to watch. But my impression was is that's probably going to be one of our best shows ever. Just because, you know, we've got Carl, he's he's Carl. Yeah. But we have John Strykermeyer on the show and we've got John Plaster Carl on the show. How many years great. in SF? Yeah. Two yeah. decades. Yeah. To see the 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 that range yeah. and type and quality of person sitting at the desk at one time. People like that, you know, and they like to hear about the history and and you know, I'm I'm a big uh I, I'm a big believer in those who forget the past are destined to repeat it. And I think that telling them stories and and hearing about the history of sure. Mac Vsog, the things that uh, happened in Vietnam and that kind of stuff, it, it, it doesn't let the men that died, they're not forgotten. No, that's what the carries books do. Carries them on. Absolutely. So. Well, we'll close on that note then. Yeah. Thank you for uh, pitching in today to help out. It's we great appreciate honor. it. Great and, honor. Um, so as we uh, come to a close here, again, we always thank Jocko Productions for making this possible and for Saw Chronicles co-working with them. And uh, uh, 
we want to thank all the veterans out there and uh, encourage people to buy John's books. And today, there are men and women that are serving our country like John Plaster from our era today. There are men and women who are fighting for our country. They're fighting for our values of the country. And John is truly one of our American heroes. And he's done much as a historian. To those of you out there on the front lines today, we thank you for fighting for all of us and for our values as a country. And we thank the first responders, police, law enforcement, border patrol, the, even the Secret Service, because they have a tough job. And paramedics, first defenders, first responders, and of course to all of our armed services up to and including today's Space Force. And uh, we want to also say one final thank you to those who didn't come home. God bless America. God bless. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.